The Ford F-150 truck drives smart design forward. The standard 12-inch productivity screen helps you get what you need done too. And the available Pro-Access tailgate improves access to bed and cargo and utilization of the bed, including when towing a trailer. Together with a wider bumper step, it's easier to access the bed and load in tight spaces. An available Pro Power onboard serves as a mobile power source, providing up to 7.2 kilowatts of power to charge a bed full of electric dirt bikes or run an entire job site worth of tools. I'm still driving my 2016 F-150 truck and 90,000 miles in. As long as I keep it clean, it honestly still looks brand new. I've taken it down snow-covered forest service roads, taken it out camping, put a ton of miles on it on the freeway, had five adults in the cabin for long trips, and it's been great everywhere. Super dependable. I still love the way it looks, nice and rugged design, but with a super comfortable interior, and I'm still very happy with the quality sound system and heated seats, and since I bought my 2016 F-150 truck, the list of standard amenities that make a truck feel like a luxury vehicle have only grown. Tough this smart can only be called F-150. Find your local Ford dealer at Ford.com. Pro access tailgate available starting spring 2024. See owner's manual for important operating instructions. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Attila the Hun. It's hard to think of a historical figure who left a more brutal legacy, right? He was the worst, wasn't he? Super evil? He was called the Scourge of God by the Romans. And even today, over 1,500 years after his death, his name remains synonymous with brutality. You do a quick web browser search, and his name shows up on all kinds of nasty lists. The top 10 most ruthless leaders of all time. The 10 cruelest and most bloodthirsty rulers of all time. He shows up in numerous heavily watched videos. Uh, the most evil men in history. Most evil man. Top 10 most evil kings in history. Most evil monarchs in the history of mankind. On and on. Ancient authors wrote of how much Rome and other ancient civilizations feared this barbaric devil. Uh, he was made to look literally devilish by ancient artists who depicted him with devil horns. He was consistently portrayed as the epitome of what ancient Romans thought of when they thought of the barbarians. Ugly, squat, fearsome, lethal in battle, an angry, crude brute interested chiefly in looting, murder, and rape. One ancient account actually describes Attila and his men as not being human, but demons, demonic warriors born from hell to bring death to the Christians. Fear the Hun, Satan's soldiers. A century ago, when the British wanted to emphasize how barbarous their opponents in the First World War truly were, how little they possessed in the way of honor, justice, and fair play, they chose to call the Germans Huns. But were the Huns actually that horrible? Or horrible at all? Were they any more less or more barbaric than anyone else alive during their day? Was Attila actually an evil dude? Or was he the victim of one of the worst and longest lasting smear campaigns in all of human history? After seeing Attila's name pop up on list after list of the worst people ever, but then finding that the brief summaries of Attila provided in these lists consistently did not back up any claims of how terrible he was with any actual historical examples, I dug deeper. And I didn't find what I thought I'd find. I downloaded some ebooks on Attila and combed them for details of all his alleged savagery. 
didn't find what I was hoping to find there either. Watched documentaries, looked into some of their wilder claims, unsubstantiated, peddling rumors as facts. The 6th century Eastern Roman historian Jordanes described Attila as a man born into the world to shake the nations. And he did shake some nations, but in an especially evil way. Mostly he shook the Roman nation. He scared the hell out of them. And they were the ones who wrote about him. So of course they depicted him as evil. Everyone who wasn't Roman was evil to some degree to the Romans. That seems to be why they slandered his name like they did to so many of their other foes. He just wasn't Roman and it was their historians writing about him, not his. That's primarily why he has the reputation he has today, as you'll hear about in this episode. Attila may or may not have been a terrible, ruthless man. I've never met him. But evidence of his ruthlessness, pretty skimpy. He was for sure a great conqueror, a gifted leader and military tactician. And that's also why his name has endured. He was one of the few adversaries of Rome to really terrify them before their empire eventually fell. And he scared them because he and his men, the men he led, were very, very good at fighting. What I also found interesting is that for a man whose name is still a household name all around the world, he didn't build a lasting empire. Until his empire, while massive at its height, very short-lived. It only existed in its second only to Rome and Europe's size for a mere eight years. And it did not endure after Attila's death. It vanished almost instantaneously. Today, we try and separate hype from history when it comes to uh, to this interesting historical figure, fact from legend. Let's get to know the real Attila and find out how his reputation was shaped. How was he able to scare Rome enough into vilifying him so thoroughly that his name has lasted for over 1,500 years after his death? Who were the Huns he led? Who else did they fight and fight with uh, alongside in 5th century Europe? All of this and more on today's Plunder and Burn, Take No Prisoners, <laughs> edition of Time Suck. This is Michael McDonald, and you're listening to Time Suck. <laughs> you're listening to Time Suck. <laughs> Happy Monday, Meat Sacks. Welcome to the Kilt. Cult? Kilt? Welcome to the Kilt. Uh, welcome to the Cult and the Kilt. New word of the curious. You don't, don't even look it up. Don't, don't, don't bother. It's a secret word I, I, don't, I don't want to talk about anymore. I'm Dan Cummins, the Suckmaster, Helmet Advocate, Attila the Hun fan, uh, fan club president. And you are listening to Time Suck. Hail Nimrod, hail Lucifina. Praise be to Bojangles and glory be to Triple M. Uh, Symphony of Insanity stand-up tour continues. Next stop, Orlando. Uh, full dates at dancummins.tv uh, for our merch today gonna get these announcements quick uh, let me let me drop a beat mm-hmm guess who this is it's me deadly innocence here to show you a cool new print it's bootleg fashion you'll look fly just like this deadly innocent guy all the proceeds go to my legal fund I need to get out and meet more ladies so we can have some fun. I'll take you with me. First we'll go peeping. Then we'll get the camera and the rope out. Do some real creeping. Ah, no, we won't. No, we won't. Uh, that shit's not true. Uh, proceeds will not go to Paul Bernardo for this uh, next piece of merch. I know I already did that rap uh, on The Secret Suck, but I had so much fun I wanted to do it again. Uh, we have a brand new bootleg style tee in the store at badmagicmerch.com. Classic hip-hop style graphics featuring the prolific Vanilla Ice wannabe. Uh, the Ken killer of the Ken and Barbie killers, Paul Bernardo, a.k.a. Deadly Innocence. Uh, and now before I dive into today's show, uh, a message from uh, the script keeper. Yes, Zach Flannery. I know a lot of you are curious. Well, he, what's he up to? He's created a fun escapist podcast. 
Uh, from the short series Inside My Mind, where Zach takes you on an audio journey through the chaos that is his brain, to Gunnar Halifax, a sci-fi comedy show that follows the worst human in the universe, Zach wants to give your uh, brain a humorous break. The show draws inspiration from golden age of radio and tells serialized stories week by week, also performed entirely by the scriptkeeper and the many voices in his head. Uh, for clarity, it is scat cast with a K, not a C. That is a different type of thing. Uh, uh, yeah, that's not that we're even saying that's a bad thing. Just not what the uh, focus of Scatcast is. Uh, Scatcast is a weekly podcast uploaded Tuesdays, Thursdays. You can find the show on all streaming services. Uh, you can look for them on socials. Sus- subscribe at scatcast.com and you can visit their Patreon. So go, Zach, go. Go fucking get it. Uh, glad to see him taking what he's learned here and running with it. And now for another topic chosen by our dear space lizards, voting it up into a Monday topic in the Time Suck app. Uh, let's head back in history to the waning days of the Roman Empire, when a nomad seemingly came out of nowhere to sack scores of cities, a man who may have brought the empire to its knees and then kicked it over, had the Pope maybe not talked him out of it, had he, uh, had he not died. Let's, let's check it out. I'm going to start today by uh, glossing over the fall of the Roman Empire. Attila and his Huns helped bring about that fall by attacking both the Western and Eastern Roman empires. As I covered, I'll introduce a lot of other people Attila either fought or fought alongside of, names I'm sure you've heard but maybe don't know a whole lot about, Goths, Franks, Vandals, Burgundians, and more. Uh, They also helped bring about the end of the Roman Empire, at least in the West, and they, like the Huns, were also consistently described as barbarians. Basically, everyone not Roman in Roman times, was a barbarian. Evil. The worst. Uh, Then I'll go over what we know about the Huns and some of what we know about Attila. After that, we'll get into the timeline, covering the life of Attila, what conquering he did, who some of his predecessors were, uh, what they did. After Attila's death, I'll describe how the Huns quickly fizzled out as a documented group of people and how their legacy as brutal barbarians has remained. I'll go over a few examples of people perpetuating this reputation in modern times after the timeline. And then we'll wrap this baby up so let's get fucking started. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, we touched on the Roman Empire before numerous times. Uh, episodes 30 and 98, uh, Caligula and Spartacus. Uh, we talked about the Roman Empire in other episodes like uh, Suck 122 on Cleopatra. When you learn that the origin of the term Encore was Mark Antony watching a sex show headlined by a devil's triangle of sorts involving one woman, two camels, and being misheard when he yelled once more because he wanted to see the show again. And then after that, you learned that, uh, that I made up that out- outrageous lie after some of you had already started calling friends and texting people about it. Uh, we just met some Romans a few weeks ago uh, with uh, the Celtic mythology suck when we learned how they pushed the Celts almost entirely out of mainland Europe and into Ireland. And we learned that their historical accounts regarding the depictions of those they fought, like the Huns this week, not to be entirely trusted. And we touched on the last days of the Roman Empire, the time of the Huns, and our suck on the Dark Ages, episode 221 in December of 2020. In that episode, we learned how the fall of the uh, Roman Empire uh, precipitated what historians would call the Dark Ages in Europe, and specifically the fall of the Western Roman Empire, uh, a time of economic, intellectual, and cultural decline, at least in Europe. And Attila directly helped bring about the Dark Ages in the sense that he weakened the empire that led to its fall, right? Not in the sense that he was consciously thinking like, I want everyone to be dumber. A fucking enlightenment, fuck art and culture. Time to get stupid. But no, he was actually an educated man, as we'll learn later in the timeline. Also, while the uh, fall of Rome sounds like one big catastrophic event, that is not the case. The Roman Empire fell slowly as a result of challenges from within and without. Had a lot, they had a lot of shit going on. 
uh, changing over the course of hundreds of years until this new form was unrecognizable from what it once looked uh, like at the height of its glory. Most historians list the year that Rome fell as being 476 CE, the year that Oda Ocker, the Germanic king, a lot of tricky names. Oh, so many tricky names today. Uh, I got a lot of pronunciation guys in here. Uh, Oda Ocker, the Germanic king of the uh, Torquilingi, a clan or dynasty of people we know very little about, disposed uh, Romulus Augustulus, the last Roman emperor to rule the western part of the Roman Empire. And Romulus wasn't even really a ruler. I mean, he was only roughly 13 when he took over and had only sat in the leader's saddle for a few months by the time he was dethroned. After he was dethroned, uh, he was allowed to live in exile by a barbarian. Uh, That happened a lot. They would let a lot of people live, actually. Uh, Were they really that bad? After uh, Oda Acker captured Rome itself, uh, Western Rome rump states would continue to exist for numerous years. A rump state being the remnant of a once much larger state left with a reduced territory in the wake of secession, you know, collapse, revolution, etc. The Senate Rome even existed for a little while longer, but without much of its power. The empire was now hopelessly fractured and would never return to a state of glory. Rome was withered on the vine, quickly dying, at least in the West. Uh, Withered in the East as well, but it did die a much slower death. Would remain an impressive European power for centuries. And actually backtracking a bit, the fall of the West and really the fall of the true Roman Empire as we generally think of it today began back in 395 CE with the death of uh, Theodosius I, aka Theodosius the Great, uh, who was the last emperor to rule the full Roman Empire before its administration was permanently split between two separate courts, one in the West, one in the East. But really, over a century earlier than that, in 285 CE, a Roman emperor uh, Diocletian, uh, or uh, Diocletian, decided that the Roman Empire was too big to manage and he divided the empire into two parts, the Eastern Roman Empire and the Western Roman Empire. Then Theodosius the Great would briefly rejoin the two halves into one, but only for a couple months, and then it fell apart with his death. Uh, The Eastern half became the Byzantine Empire with its capital in Constantinople or modern-day Istanbul, although it was not known as the Byzantine Empire while it existed. When the two sides divided, those in the East and those in the West both still thought of themselves as being Roman. No one was saying that they were Western Roman or Eastern Roman. Those titles were handed out by historians long after these people were dead. Uh, Same with the term uh, Byzantine Empire. Those in the East would continue to identify as simply being Roman all the way until 1453. I didn't know that. Uh, By 1453, the Roman Empire was truly a pitiful shadow of its former self, reduced to territory that today comprises only a small part of Greece, just a little sliver of Western Turkey, Its lands have been steadily carved up, mostly by the Ottoman Empire for centuries at that point. Now, bringing this all back to today's topic, Western Rome fell just 23 years after the death of Attila the Hun, and had he never existed, it might have lasted much longer. Demon or not, that horse-loving son of a bitch played an enormous role in weakening the Roman Empire, sacking so many of its cities with his uh, terrifying cavalry, and the Romans just weren't prepared to fight. Attila took so much of the empire's gold with tributes. He demanded tributes that if not paid would have led to more sacking. He also created the blueprint that Genghis Khan would use nearly 800 years later to sack so many more cities, crush numerous empires, attack quickly with superior cavalry, rain arrows shot with superior bows down onto your foes before risking death fighting them in melee combat, and also demand hefty tributes from those you're prepared to fight using the gold they give you to enrich and grow your army to attack others and grow further in power and often also attack the same people funding your growth when they eventually stop paying their tributes or when you just feel like attacking them just because you want to take all the shit. 
Uh, Genghis, who life we, whose life we sucked in uh, episode 195 in June of 2020, once called Attila the Hun his hero. Before Attila, the Romans had mostly managed or had managed for the most part, excuse me, to defend themselves uh, pretty successfully from the barbarians, which was a Roman catch-all term for anyone who wasn't Roman. They definitely had trouble before, though, particularly with the Goths. Uh, more on who those uh, you know, uh, people were in just a bit. Attila would join forces with some Goths and attack Rome. After some Goths successfully beat the Romans in the Battle of Adrianople in 378 CE, the Huns joined up with some Goths, their former adversaries, to plunder Roman territories further. When they were then successful, the apparent weakness of Rome would encourage Attila, once he became leader of the Huns, to make and break treaties with Rome with fear, uh, without fear excuse me, of consequences. And when his wide-scale destruction of Roman cities and towns met with little or no resistance uh, for the most part, uh, built his confidence, allowed him to recruit more and more men, the Roman army, uh, no longer the seemingly invincible fighting force it once was, and he just kept taking things further, you know, until he was eventually stopped. Uh, Till his ability to command a vast army of warriors from different nations, combining people from various other nomadic tribes like the Alans, uh, um, Alemanni, Ostrogoths, a Germanic Roman era group of Goths living in Eastern Europe, uh, and more gave him a huge advantage over the Roman generals of his time, who had difficulty, generally, uh, keeping their non-Roman contingents under their control and, for the most part, could not get them to fight alongside them. Uh, while we don't know a lot about Attila from ancient historical accounts, he must have been one hell of a leader to get all those people to fight for him. And he was rumored to be a fierce warrior himself. Uh, he built the Huns and arguably the most effective fighting force in all of 5th century Europe for a time, which is how he was able to build a vast empire from virtually uh, nothing, from you know much less and less than 10 years. At its height, his empire would stretch from Central Asia across to modern-day France, down through the uh, Danube Valley, that river. Europe was almost evenly divided between lands Attila conquered and the Eastern and Western Roman empires, with a few much smaller areas ruled by groups called like the, like the Visigoths, uh, Burgundians, and Vandals. So who the hell were all these other barbarians in this complicated historical landscape with so many different players uh, sometimes it made me feel like I was putting together the blueprint for a uh, season of Game of Thrones when I was assembling and reassembling the information this week. Uh, let's go over some terms and get to know some of the people. I learned so much this week. Uh, Attila banded together with people he also fought against at times. Attila was born sometime around the beginning of the 5th century, with most speculating the year to be 406 CE. He was born into the Huns, a group of Eurasian nomads who had showed up on the European scene around 370 CE. Society of pastoral warriors whose primary form of nourishment was meat and milk from their herds. And we don't know for sure where they came from. Much like the Celts we recently went over, uh, they didn't write shit down. Weren't unified into a single kingdom. Not for very long. Uh, we think, and even, even when they were unified, the most they were ever unified, there was still a lot of dissension. People, you know, leaving, fleeing to other, you know, fight for other people and stuff. Uh, we think they were from somewhere in Asia, which is pretty fucking vague. Not sure if you've ever looked at a globe or played Risk. But Asia, it's a pretty big place. Uh, the biggest of seven continents. Uh, we don't know what language they spoke. We call it Hunnic, but it didn't survive unless they spoke a language that did survive that just wasn't called Hunnic. It's fucking amazing how little we know about the Huns. Basically, almost everything we know uh, comes from just a couple dudes. Uh, one of the main ones, uh, Priscus of Paneum, and he was a piece of shit. His nickname was Fuck That Guy. No, I don't, know, I don't know why I said that. No, Priscus was a 5th century Eastern Roman diplomat, Greek historian. He actually met Attila, spent some time with him. He wrote a massive eight-volume history of the Eastern Roman Empire at the time, chronicling the Huns in great detail, but then most of that history was lost. 
Now much of what we have uh, regarding Attila is what later historians wrote referencing primarily the writings of Priscus. So that's a bummer that we don't know more. Uh, Most of what we know about the uh, different groups, including the Huns, who lived in the first few centuries of the Common Era, groups the Romans called barbarians, it just can be traced back to the, you know, what remains of just the writings of a handful of various biased Roman historians who were clearly prone to hyperbole and flat out nonsense at times. Before I share more of what we do know about the Huns, so let's, uh, yeah, let's get to know these other groups now that they, they fought with or against. Starting with the Goths. Who were the Goths? Well, the Goths were a group of uh, misfits. You know, they were moody, dark, brooding. A lot of their women were sexy as fuck. Loved to dye their hair black. So much black. Uh, they wore black latex, black uh, velvets, black lace, black fishnets, black leather, uh, often tinged with scarlet or purple, accessorized with tightly laced corsets, gloves, stilettos, uh, punk rock leather boots, always uh, black as well. Uh, sometimes accented by a lot of silver jewelry, typically with occult themes. Often had their nipples pierced, sometimes their clits. Uh, they wielded their sexuality as a whip against the fucking man. Down with the patriarchy, subvert and destroy the dominant paradigm, you capitalist fucking pig. That's the kind of shit they would say. Noise. They were both very sexual and also very against being labeled as being sexual. Eyes up here, pig. Not on the cleavage my corset is heaving up that I'm showcasing right to the edge of my areolas. They often consider themselves more artistic than maybe they actually were. And the themes of their work, you know, often gravitated towards monster tattoos, naked ladies, other shocking imagery. And they worshipped Lucifina. Hail Lucifina, dark mistress, queen of the Goths. They were tough, but also very sensitive. The men often dressed like Sid Vicious would centuries later when he joined the Sex Pistols in the late 70s. Black hair, often spiky. Black leather jackets, lots of chains. So many fucking chains. Dark makeup, combat boots, a shit ton of angst, generally packaged in a very skinny, not capable of doing a lot of damage without the proper accompanying weaponry frame. Fuck yeah, bro. Uh, wait, no, 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 no. Scratch, scratch a lot of that. Uh, I'm thinking of current goths. I'm thinking of goth fashion. That has literally nothing to do with ancient Germanic tribes. Uh, let me restart. The goths, uh, the ancient goths, were nomadic Germanic people who liked the Huns. And most non-Romans back in the early centuries of the common era were more of a loose confederation of tribes, you know, in their early history than a unified kingdom. Uh, they fought against Roman rule in the late 300s, uh, 4th century, early 5th century CE, also helped to bring about the downfall of the Roman Empire. The ascendancy of the Goths said to have marked the beginning of the medieval period in Europe. Uh, Visigoth was the name given to the western tribes of the Goths, while in the east they were referred to as Ostrogoths. Both of those terms will come up today. Uh, by the time of Roman Emperor uh, Septimus, oh my gosh, Septimus, Septimus Severus. By the time, he sounds like a fucking uh, Hogwarts guy, a Harry Potter guy. Uh, by the time he came on the scene in 193 CE and transformed Rome essentially into a military monarchy, the barbarian invasions and some of those fucking goths and their trench coats and their nose rings and their rude graphic tees uh, were already causing problems. Gothic barbarian invasions or of uh, Roman territories by these Germanic peoples have been happening since before 200 BCE. But they really ramped up around 150 CE when population growth forced the Goths into conflict with Rome over struggles for land and resources, right? One of the uh, most enduring reasons for war, a struggle for land resources, you know, land and resources. Meanwhile, to the east, some other Goths had penetrated into the Balkan Peninsula and Asia as far as Cyprus. And then Emperor Claudius checked their advance in present day Serbia in 269 CE. Claudius was the dude who ruled Rome in between Caligula and Nero. Not nearly as famous as those two fucking psychopaths. Those guys were the true barbarians. Uh, the Celts started to get beaten around in present-day Britain under Claudius's rule. 
Uh, the Celts were already almost entirely gone on mainland Europe or assimilated into other cultures by the time Attila and the Huns would start marching through Europe. I'm talking about the Goths. Uh, by the end of the fourth century, before they would briefly lose a lot of their territory to the Huns, uh, some Gothic tribes controlled an empire from present-day Germany to the Danube and Don Rivers in Eastern Europe and from the Black Sea in the South to the Baltic Sea in the North. Uh, where exactly the ancient Goths come from is, you know, like it is with the Huns, a mystery. In the sixth century CE, the Roman writer Jordanes, likely Gothic himself, wrote a history of the Goths. And a lot of what we know about Attila the Hun comes from the writings of Jordanes, who pulled from a lot of sources that no longer exist. You know, he drew a lot from the writings of that Roman guy I talked about a second ago, Priscus. And Jordanes claimed that the Goths came from a cold island called uh, Skenza, possibly modern-day Scandinavia, is what he was talking about. Uh, when they would have lived there, exactly where is unknown. He wrote that after a series of migrations south, they found themselves living close to the borders of the Roman Empire. They had a written language of sorts that made use of runic inscriptions. However, a few of those inscriptions uh, have been found and those that have survived are quite short. The religion may have been uh, uh, may, may have made use of shamans, people who could have acted as intermediaries between themselves and various pagan gods. Uh, at the end of the fourth century, the Huns would push a lot of the Goths into Roman territory. Emperor Valens, who ruled the eastern half of the Roman Empire, personally led an army into the Balkans to subdue the Goths. On August 9th, 378 CE, this army engaged the Goths near the city of Adrianople. Valens underestimated the size of the Gothic force. As a result, his army was outflanked, annihilated, and he was fucking killed. Uh, not long after dishing out this ass whooping, the Goths would join forces with the Huns to attack the Romans further. In addition to the Goths and the Huns, the Romans were uh, also often at war around this time with the Franks, Vandals, Saxons, others in the West. Who were the Saxons? Well, the Saxons were a group of early Germanic peoples whose name was given in the early Middle Ages to a large country, Old Saxony, near the North Sea, uh, coast of Northern Germania, what is now Germany. So many Germanic peoples. In the late Roman Empire, their name was used to refer to uh, Germanic coastal raiders. Also as a word, something uh, like the later word uh, Viking. So the Saxons, uh, you know, related to the Vikings in all likelihood, possibly, uh, you know, one and the same for a while. Their origins appear to be mainly somewhere in or near uh, or near the above mentioned German North Sea coast. Anglo-Saxons, who would settle Great Britain around the time of the collapse of the Western Roman Empire, were derived from tribes of Saxons and also tribes of Angles, yet another Germanic tribe and still other Germanic tribes. Uh, Saxon rulers would go on to establish all kinds of kingdoms in Western Europe long after the time of Attila. Present-day Europe is made up of uh, nations whose histories can be traced back to various bands of these various groups of people, like the Vandals. Well, kind of like the Vandals. Uh, they didn't last long enough to leave much of a direct legacy. The Vandals were tribes of still more Germanic people uh, who actually maintained a kingdom along with the Alans, who will meet in a second in northern Africa from 429 to 534 CE, encompassing the life of Attila right there on the Mediterranean coast. Fucking Germans. So many Germans. They waged a shit ton of war long before starting both world wars, the 20th century. Uh, these fuckers, whose name has become synonymous with willful desecration or destruction, sacked Rome uh, for the second to last time in 455 CE, killing Emperor Petronius Maximus in the process. And their name, Vandal, from which the word vandalism is derived, you know, more slander. Uh, the Romans slandered the shit out of all these people. Sadly, the historical event the Vandals are mostly associated with is a sacking of Rome. But were they really that bad? Everyone sacked everyone back then. After sacking Rome, the Vandals could have burned it to the fucking ground. But the Pope, Leo I, basically asked them really nicely, please don't, please don't do that. Please don't, please don't sack our city. And they didn't. And that decision would come back to haunt them. That's an important lesson, right, uh, that I took from this story. If you get a chance to invade Italy 
and you get a chance to, to kill the Pope, you gotta fucking take it. You gotta cut the head off the snake. Uh, don't let that silver-tongued son of a bitch weasel out from under uh, the blade of your sword. Okay, uh, the Vandals would uh, be essentially wiped off the fucking map by the Eastern Roman Empire in a devastating North African campaign begun in 533. So maybe maybe should have crushed some Romans when they had the chance, built themselves up. I don't know. While they weren't as bad as their name implies, I don't think they were saints either. You know, I don't think the world allowed for any group to survive back then if they were too saintly. Uh, back when the Vandals sacked Rome, they did before leaving. You know, they killed a bunch of Roman citizens, stole a bunch of art, took a bunch of gold, enslaved a lot of Romans. Uh, you know, took them home. Uh, they did destroy a bunch of shit like Rome's aqueducts. But I am certain that Rome would have done worse to them. I mean, they would go on to basically exterminate them later. Uh, the Vandals were also pushed around by the Huns in Attila's time, which shows how powerful the Huns were for a while. Before they sacked Rome, which happened just two years after Attila died, they had fled west to avoid the Huns settling in Gaul, modern-day France, parts of Belgium, western Germany, northern Italy. Uh, they're thought to have originated in southern Poland, the Vandals. So fucking Gross. JK, old habit. Uh, and like these other groups, they were uh, there was numerous subgroups of Vandals led by various chieftains. Sometimes they fought others, like the Romans. Sometimes they fought themselves. Uh, the Vandals were primarily farmers who laid out their lands, usually in river valleys, so as to form circular villages, uh, made a living from tending crops, raising animals for slaughter, also through trade. Houses, typically one or two rooms with walls of wood or wicker covered by clay. Uh, also craftsmen. Among their crafts, uh, weaponsmithing was highly respected. Within the Vandals, they uh, were also skilled in making jewelry, ceramics, weaving. They were ruled by various kings, seemed to have had an upper class of nobility and famous for their skill in horsemanship. And, uh, you know, an important role was tending horses for warfare from these people. And, and this same general description could be applied to almost all of the Germanic people in Europe at this time. They farmed, they traded, they liked horses, they had leaders, they lived in little villages, tiny houses, made jewelry, weapons, you know, good at fighting. Uh, the Romans made treaties with the Vandals like they did with a lot of these other Germanic, you know, quote-unquote barbarians to keep them from fucking their cities up. Uh, Vandals also described by ancient sources as tall, blonde, good-looking. So a rare positive, uh, you know, description by, uh, you know, typically Roman sources about the Vandals. And we don't know much more than that. Next barbarians, the Franks. Who were the Franks? Very interesting here. The Franks were noted for being uh, very tall and slim, for having no appendages or faces and for being made up of the worst cuts of pork and beef. Also, rumor has it composed of things like uh, raccoon eyeballs, rodent taints, marsupial buttholes, uh, the occasional human finger, lots of hair, dirt, some shit and piss, quite a bit of blood from various mammals, maggots, so many bugs, uh, sorted slaughter room uh, floor shavings. Uh, wait, no, that, that was a wait, no, that was a bad slanderous description of hot dogs. Uh, not talking about those Franks. Yeah, sometimes, sometimes I'm a silly goose. Uh, it's fun for me to think about a race of ancient people in Europe who looked exactly like hot dogs. Maybe wearing like little helmets and, you know, shields and stuff somehow to just magically stay on, even though they don't have arms. Anyway, these Franks, like the Goths, also a Germanic speaking people. Of course they were so many Germanic tribes. They invaded the Western German, oh, Western German? <laughs> they invested the Western, they, they investigated the Western German Empire. No, they invaded the Western Roman Empire in the fifth century. Dominating present day Northern France, Belgium, and Western Germany, the Franks went on to establish the most powerful Christian kingdom of early medieval Western Europe. The name France derived from their name. Uh, the Franks emerged into recorded history in the third century CE as a Germanic tribe living on the east bank of the lower Rhine River. Next bar barbarians, uh, the Burgundians, yet another tribe of Germanic people whose origins we don't know much about. They probably originated on the southern shores of the Baltic Sea in northern Poland, below present-day Sweden and Finland, and some of them would fight with Attila. 
The Burgundians uh, established a kingdom in the time of Attila in Gaul, part of which is uh, in the region of France, now known as Burgundy. And what do we know about this early kingdom? Again, not much. Once again, uh, most of what we know about the early years, mainly from Roman sources who basically wrote that these people were, uh, you know, good fighters, but dumb. Sadly, none of these motherfuckers back in these times ever seemed to have sat down and just wrote out a nice, detailed book explaining who they were and what they did. They were lazy, lazy barbarians. Uh, Fifth century Roman bishop in Gaul described them very unfavorably. I love uh, this account. This is uh, one of the only surviving firsthand accounts we have of them from these early years. Complaining about the uh, Burgundians in a letter, he wrote, Placed as I am among long-haired hordes, having to endure Germanic speech, praising often with a wry face the song of the gluttonous Burgundian who spreads rancid butter on his hair. You don't have a reek of garlic and foul onions discharged upon you at early morn from ten breakfasts, and you are not invaded before dawn by a crowd of giants. So not a flattering description. Right? They were ugly. and Fucking ugly brutes. Smelled like fucking onions and garlic and put butter in their hair for some reason. Um, for some reason, that description makes me think of the Hound from Game of Thrones. Again, I, I thought about the Game of Thrones a lot working on this week's topic. Uh, Religious-wise, the Burgundians, Vandals, a lot of the other barbarians, uh, you know, originally pagan, became Christian, especially in the time period we're talking about today, uh, but not Catholic, actually. Many, many practice Arianism, an early 4th century Christian doctrine that claimed Jesus didn't always exist and was God's son, but not eternal like the father. And the Pope didn't like that doctrine. And so he didn't like the people who believed in that doctrine. When he heard about this doctrine, he was like, shut the fuck up! Not true! Convert or kill those barbarians! Yeah! That's what the fucking Pope said. Uh, no, those guys, uh, you know, they didn't follow the Pope, which made the Pope hate him. I wish the Pope talked like that. Uh, the Catholic Church would snuff out Arianism and other non-Pope-based versions of Christianity by the 7th century. And there were other Germanic tribes, uh, so many. The, uh, the Marcomanni of Central Europe, who may have actually been the Suebi, a tribe that comes up briefly later. There was the uh, Alamanni, living in present-day Switzerland, southern Germany, eastern France, various high German dialects derived from their old language. There were the Gepids, who lived in lands that now make up modern Romania, Hungary, Serbia. Very little known about them, but they uh, did fight the Huns and the Romans. There were the Lombards from present-day Denmark, maybe came from Sweden before that. They'd take over much of Italy in the 6th and 7th centuries, hold much of the peninsula until the Normans right, would take it from them in the 11th century. Normans arose out of another German, German tribe. right? The Norse people mingled with Franks, more Germans, and Gallo-Romans, people in Gaul whose heritage was a mix of Roman and various primarily Germanic tribes. Uh, there were the Alans from who the fuck knows where. They joined, joined forces with the Vandals at some point, founded that Vandal kingdom in Northern Africa along the Mediterranean I mentioned that the Romans would destroy. Uh, they were nomads like the Huns, noted by the Romans for being excellent horse breeders, also pushed west by the Huns. Some sources seem to think that they were also Germanic in or origin. Others think they were Persian. Their name derived from the old Iranian term Aryan. Not the Hitler's wet dream type of Aryan. The real Aryan, which as we discussed in a previous episode of the Nazis, is not a white German person. Uh, there's a thought that the Alans originated from Central Asia, north of present-day India, and that they migrated west, eventually making all the way to modern-day Portugal and northern Africa. Uh, the Ossetians, an Iranian ethnic group living in the Caucasus Mountains, likely their descendants. And instead of a Germanic language, you know, many of them spoke an early version of what would later become Iranian. Uh, there were also Slavish tribes, who many trace back to the uh, Veneti, people who inhabited Central Europe just before Attila's time. These ancient Slavs would go on to become Russians, Ukrainians, Czechs, Poles, fucking gross, Bulgarians, Serbs, Croats, uh, Macedonians, many more modern ethnicities. 
The Venati also sometimes listed as being Celtic in origin. So much crossover. Of course there was. All these ancient tribes are conquering one another, forming alliances with one another, uh, doing a whole lot of fucking one another. Right? Hail Lucifina. All that meat sack blood constantly being cross-pollinated. Uh, there were various uh, Sarmatian tribes who were Iranian and ethno ethno-linguistic origin. There were the Greeks who had been conquered by the Romans. Some of the Roman historians I'll mention were actually Greek, but because they were Greeks born in territory, conquered by Rome, also listed as Roman. And I'm sure there were several other tribes I'm not mentioning, right? During Attila's life in Europe and in particular Central and Western Europe, where he did the vast majority of his conquering, there was Rome divided into the West and East. And then there was a shit ton of other tribes of people who weren't nearly as unified or as strong as the Romans. Outside of the Romans in the early centuries of the common era, uh, these tribes primarily Germanic people populating Europe. And all these tribes came into contact with Rome in various ways. Typically, they'd have their villages attacked, their people assimilated or enslaved, their soldiers either paid to join Roman armies as mercenaries or forced to fight or die. Uh, They'd live under Rome's thumb, sometimes be completely assimilated, sometimes rebel, sometimes be destroyed. They would have their cities sometimes razed to the ground, their women raped, their children butchered. They were absolutely no worse than the Romans from what I can tell, but they didn't write the history books we have today. So they ended up being labeled as evil barbarians. And the Romans were, of course, the good guys. You get to be the good guy when you get to write the good guy history books. Uh, The Romans by this point had the Pope on their side, right? Under the uh, Pope's guidance, all of their murder, overall carnage, justified. God's will, right? Kill the pagans. They're part of the devil's league. Uh, The equal actions, reactions of the barbarians, you know, that's evil. It's pagan or at least heretical of the devil. Uh, The fiercest non-Roman leaders like Attila were given fun titles by the uh, Christian Romans like the scourge of God, heavily, sometimes cartoonishly demonized. Uh, By the time of Attila, Rome had been fighting these various tribes for several centuries. These people had known Rome for a long time and many of them had become Roman in many ways, right? They'd adopted a lot of Roman cultural practices, married Romans, they spoke Latin, had the children of their nobles raised in Roman courts oftentimes. So how savage could they have been really? You know, many of them had fought for uh, Rome or their fathers had. They had incorporated aspects, you know, various aspects of Roman culture into their own. Individually, none of them were strong enough to fully take down Rome. Uh, They didn't have the numbers or fortifications or overall knowledge. The only really barbarous shit that they were doing was attacking Rome. And the only reason some of their sacks of Roman of other Roman cities were even ever pulled off by these, you know, so-called barbarians was because Rome was fighting so damn many of them all the damn time. I just forgot how much constant warfare was happening back at this time. Uh, these, these tribes constantly attacking the edges of the empire or being attacked by forces on the edge of the Roman empire. If Rome would have been able to focus its full might on any one of these tribes, you know, would have annihilated them, you know, as they, as it did to the, to the vandals, but it couldn't always do that. And then Attila showed up and took great advantage of the fact that Rome was fighting too many enemies. While Attila never sacked Rome, he probably could have had he lived a little bit longer and he did sack so many other cities. He was able to unite many of these people against Rome. And it would have, uh, you know, if he would have lived much longer, maybe he would have taken down both Western and Eastern Rome. Uh, that was what made him so evil, right? The fact that he was formidable. He scared the Romans. Rome couldn't defeat him like they could most other so-called barbarians. He was different and the Huns themselves were different. So let's meet the Huns now before we really get to know what we uh, do know of Attila and his conquering. Who the fuck were the Huns? Well, not gonna be surprised, but no one knows. <laughs> uh, arguably they were the most mysterious of this mysterious bunch of uh, different groups of people a historian very knowledgeable concerning the huns peter heather chair of the medieval history department and professor of medieval history at king's college london a man considered the world's leading authority on the huns barbarous contemporaries the goths 
had a quote that sums up the search for truth about Attila and the Huns nicely. He said, Our ignorance of the Huns is astounding. It is not even clear what language they spoke. Most of the linguistic evidence we have comes in the form of personal names, Hunnic rulers and their henchmen from the time of Attila. But by then, Germanic had become the lingua franca, franca of the Hunnic Empire, and many of the recorded names are either certainly or probably Germanic. Iranian, Turkish, and Finn uh, Ugrian, like the later uh, Magyars, have all had their proponents for the language of the Huns, and the, and the Magyars is uh, who the Hungarians would be. But the truth is that we do not know what language the Huns spoke and probably never will. The direct evidence we have for the motivations and forms of Hunnic migration is equally limited. According to the ancient writer uh, Ammianus, a 4th century Roman, there was nothing to explain. The origin and seedbed of all evils, the people of the Huns who dwell beyond the Sea of uh, Azov, near the frozen ocean, and are quite abnormally savage. They were just so fierce that it was natural for them to go around hitting people. Similar images of Hunnic ferocity are found in other sources. Uh, The Sea of Azov, uh, just uh, south of Ukraine, northern extension of the Black Sea. So interesting, right? Uh, Maybe the not knowing is part of what Attila's memorableness comes from, right? He and his warriors, they're almost uh, mythological. Feels like you can assign various attributes to them if you want. They came from nowhere, maybe Central Asia, maybe from hell itself. Maybe they're not totally human, part monster. Mysterious barbarians from the darkness. Old images of Attila, often painted, uh, as I mentioned earlier, with horns on his head, like he was a demon, not a man. He was a symbol of terror, a boogeyman. Don't roam too far from the village. Attila and his men might get you, rape you, cut you into pieces and eat you. Some scholars believe, and this is nowhere near universally accepted, uh, that the Huns originated from the nomadic Zongnu people who entered the historical record in 318 BCE. Uh, Zang, sorry, Zangnu. The Zangnu were a tribal confederation of nomadic peoples who, according to ancient Chinese sources, inhabited the eastern Eurasian steppe from the 3rd century BCE to the late 1st century CE. A lot of mystery surrounds these people as well. Some scholars think that they're not just the ancestors of the Huns, but also the ancestors of the Mongols possibly of the Turks, Iranians, and others. All kinds of theories. So many names for us meat sacks over the years as we uh, migrate around the globe or migrated and evolved from monkey to man. Uh, the Zhengnu terrorized China during the Qin dynasty and later, later during the Han dynasty. And part of the reason uh, the Great Wall of China was reportedly built was to help protect against the mighty Zhengnu. Uh, and then there's another origin theory that the Huns are not even human, that they came from witches and swamp demons. Not kidding. Uh, Jordanes, that super factual 6th century Roman historian, would write describing the origin of the Huns. We learn from old traditions that their origin was as follows. Philomer, king of the Goths, son of Gaderic the Great, who was the fifth in succession to hold the rule of Gatay after the departure from the island of Scanza, found among his people certain witches. Suspecting these women, he expelled them from the midst of his race and compelled them to wander in solitary exile afar from his army. There the unclean spirits, who beheld them as they wandered through the wilderness, bestowed their embraces upon them, and begat this savage race, which dwelt at first in the swamps, a stunted, foul, and puny tribe, scarcely human, having no language save one which bore but slight resemblance to human speech. Totally. That one sounds like the most plausible to me, right? Super legit. Jordan's probably correct. The Huns must have been formed when some witches... Made it with some fucking swamp demons. That's probably why we don't have good records on them, right? They're monsters. And monsters, for the most part, don't keep good records from what I understand. The demon Huns, again, according to Jordanes, after being brought forth from some kind of black magic, then settled on the farther bank of the Maotic Swamp. 
Jordanes goes on to note how they were fond of hunting and had no skill in any other art. They were brutes. They were dumb brutes. They could grunt. They could bash in the heads of certain animals. This guy is the main historical source we have for what we know about the Huns. Clearly, not always super factual. Uh, the Swampy mentioned is a real place, though. Uh, it's a name formerly given to the swampy land surrounding the Strait of Kerch, which joins the Sea of uh, Azov. Maybe I've been saying it wrong earlier. Azov, Sea of Azov, uh, in the Black Sea. A-Z-O-V. Uh, right where uh, Crimea and Russia meet. An area in the news a lot right now, actually, with the current Russia and Ukraine tensions. Uh, Jordanes then proceeds to say that these witchy demon folk, they were feisty. He wrote, after they had grown to a nation, they disturbed the peace of neighboring races by theft and rapine. I.e., they stole their neighbor's shit and took their land. Kind of exactly like what the Romans and all other conquerors did to people back then. Uh, Jordan Zen states that they entered into civilization when one of their hunters was pursuing game. This is like, you know, this uh, legendary mythical origin story. Uh, one of their hunters was pursuing game on the farthest edge of the Maotic swamp, saw a doe who led them across a swamp, now advancing and again standing still, which showed them that the swamp could be crossed, whereas before they had supposed the swamp was impassable as the sea. They were too stupid to know that they could walk through the swamp. That's how fucking dumb these people. They had to see a deer. Like, how's, how's that deer walking in the, in the water? It's a water walking deer. And then someone's like, I think it's a swamp deer. Maybe we can walk over the swamp too. And then they finally tried. You know, they had to fucking wait. That's ridiculous. Uh, once they reached the other side, they discovered the land of Scythia. And at that moment, the doe vanished. And they were probably scared. Where's our doe? Where's our doe leader go? Uh, Jordanes continued. Now, in my opinion, the evil spirits from whom the Huns are descended did this from envy of the Scythians and the Huns who had been wholly ignorant that there was another world beyond Maotis were now filled with admiration for the Scythian land as they were quick of mind. Oh, they're quick of mind now. Okay. Uh, they believed that this path utterly unknown to any age of the past had been divinely revealed to them. They returned to their tribe, told them what had happened. You got to see what this deer led us to. Praised Scythia and persuaded the people to hasten thither along or hasten thither along the way they had found by the guidance of the doe. As many as they captured, when they thus entered Scythia for the first time, they sacrificed to victory, like the god victory. They remained, uh, the remainder they conquered and made subject to themselves like a whirlwind of nations. They swept across the great swamp. And here we have another group of ancient people, right? The Scythians. Scythians are generally believed to be uh, of Iranian origin and among the earliest people to master using double-bladed lightsabers, like one of the most famous warriors, the Jedi Darth Maul. Maybe that's the wrong Sith. No, the real Scythians were among the earliest people to master the art of mountain warfare. They were another steppe people. All right, people from the large areas of flat, unforested grassland in southeastern Europe and Siberia, like the Mongols, like in all likelihood the Huns. Uh, while Jordan's description of the Huns is obviously biased and at moments just fucking ridiculous, he probably was accurate in that the Romans did think that the Huns came from the area around the northern edge of the Sea of Azov. Yeah, that is how you're supposed to say it. And they uh, may have lived there. But is that where they were from? Or was it just a stopping point on their journey west? Were they from, you know, somewhere uh, further further east? So that's what we know when it comes to the Hunnic origins. Once they showed up, they were written about by Roman chroniclers. So we do know a bit more. Uh, we know that prior to the fourth century, right? Just prior, uh, for example, the Huns had snakes for penises and flaming swords for arms and skinless meatless skulls for heads uh, with lots of spiders, right? Living in the eye sockets and centipedes. They'll crawl in and out of their nose hole. And we know they had zombie wolverines for legs. Or we know, we know that. Or we know that prior to the 4th century, the Huns traveled in small groups led by chieftains and had no known individual king or leader. Fuck, I wish they had wolverine legs. 
Uh, we know that they arrived in Southeastern Europe around 370 CE, would go on to conquer a lot of territory over the next 80-ish years. Uh, the Huns were equestrian masters. That seems to be a common theme when people were describing them. They were good on the horse. Reportedly revered their horses, sometimes even supposedly slept uh, on horseback. No word about them fucking their horses, though. I don't know. They were very close to the horses, but I don't think they fucked. They learned horsemanship as early as the age of three. They were a tough, rugged people. Uh, according to legend, on the day uh, of a Hun boy's birth, male babies were slashed on both cheeks as a means to teach them to endure pain. Pain and blood, a part of life. If true, man, what an introduction to the world. Right? You go from laying on mom's chest for a bit, just barely figuring out how to, how to breathe air. And your dad's grabbing you, cutting your face up. Welcome to the cruel world, motherfucker. If you can't handle it, just die already, little baby. You're not going to make it as a Hun. Uh, according to archaeological evidence, the Huns may have also practiced something known as head shaping. I've seen a uh, picture of these skulls. This is wild ass shit. Uh, they use wooden planks, right? There were some uh, Native American tribes that did this as well. These wooden planks, pieces of fabrics on babies to give their heads a flat, terrifying shape. More pain. Maybe maybe this head shaping wasn't meant for intimidation, though. Maybe they just thought it was hot. We don't know. Maybe maybe like a nine head instead of a forehead was the height of Hunnic sex appeal. Just, mmm, God, hot. Damn, Urgula's fine. Look at that. Look at that head, bro. Look at that head. What do you, what do you think that is? Two feet? Three feet? I'm going to get that girl to fall in love with me. God, we're going to have so many giant potato head kids. So many super long-headed, going to make some people in the 21st century think we're a part alien when they examine our bones heads. And what do these Huns look like other than some of them maybe having big-ass banana heads? Uh, most Hun soldiers dressed simply. They didn't typically wear heavy armor, right? They valued being light, agile, fast on horseback as they fought. Uh, warriors who gained wealth in battle or nobles who already had money. They would regularly outfit their steeds with saddles and stirrups trimmed with gold, silver, and precious stones like many a meat sack. They liked a shiny thing. Uh, they raised livestock but weren't farmers and seldom settled in one area. They lived off the land as hunter-gatherers, uh, dining on wild game and gathering root and herbs. It does make me think it's so funny how, how similar we are. Sorry, just to back up for a second. This thought just coming to me. Um, <laughs> like they would decorate their horses right, with these like gold, silver, you know, precious stones. And now I just think about like, you know, just jacked up, you know, customized pickup trucks and just custom cars and stuff. Like we're the same, we're the same people. <laughs> we just have different toys, right? The same dude who's like putting all the shiny shit on his horse is the same guy now who, you know, has like, uh, which I, I'm not saying I'm not this guy. I like a cool truck, you know? It's like, I think about like getting like cool tires. Uh, I already have cool tires, but like cooler tires, maybe jacking it up a little bit more, maybe having some more little, you know, uh, different little things to accent it. Look like a, make it look like a toy, like a Hot Wheel truck. Right, and a long time ago, I would have had just a shiny horse. Right, just get, I got a little more silver. I don't know, man. Put put a bit. You know what? Put some silver on, under his hooves. Let's let's jack it up. Let's make it a little bit taller. Let's lift those hooves a little bit, and uh, let's put some uh, put some lapis lazuli and some gold in its tail. Yeah, fucking shine that shit up, bro. Ah, oh, man, it looks tight. Right, we're the same. We're the fucking same people. Anyway, uh, they raised livestock. Right, they uh, I think I already said, but weren't farmers. Seldom settled in one area. They lived off the land as hunter gatherers, dining on wild game, gathering roots and herbs took a unique approach to warfare for the time they lived in. They would move fast and swiftly on the battlefield, fought in uh, seeming uh, disarray, which would confuse their foes, keep them on the run. They were expert archers who used reflex bows, made of seasoned birch, bone, and glue. Their arrows could travel faster and farther than their foes. Huge battlefield advantage. The scourge of God and his Huns shocked Westerners with their recurve bows. Now, most Hun warriors carried composite bows assembled yeah, from wood, uh, sinew, horn, bone. Unlike the Western bow, the step weapons made to curve back on themselves at the ends, which would generate additional torque. It could make their arrows fly with enough velocity, supposedly to penetrate armor at 100 yards. Also smaller than typical bows, made them easier to wield on horseback. 
And Hun horse archers famed for their ability to accurately fire their bows even while at a full gallop. I can see why Genghis Khan found them inspirational. Uh, Thanks to their experience lassoing horses and cattle, the Huns, when not shooting arrows, could also skillfully lasso their enemies on the battlefield, brutally tearing them off their horses, dragging them to a violent death. God, that fucking suck. Right? One minute you're riding your war horse right into battle, getting ready to slice some fool down, and the next minute you're lassoed, just flung off your horse, arms pinned at your sides, right? Being dragged across rocks and shit. Until your head gets bashed in, until you get stomped by someone else's horse, or you have like big cuts and gashes opening up and you know bleeding out. I have to imagine you're screaming the whole time. God, if, if you had a really high pain tolerance and you love to joke around, right? You really love to commit to a prank. What a cool final prank you could pull when you die in this situation, right? Instead of yelling out in pain or begging for mercy when you're getting lassoed and dragged to your death, what if you, as you're getting dragged, you just uh, were able to yell out, Wee! Like with a big grin on your face. Maybe clap your hands too. Faster, daddy, faster. <laughs> I feel like that might, you know, just get the guy dragging you to stop. He's like, stop it. What the fuck are you doing? This isn't supposed to be fun, you weirdo. Maybe he even cuts you loose. Just get out of here. God, you weird me out. Uh, other weapons the Huns likely fought with, uh, maces, daggers, axes, lances, javelins, improvised weapons like nets, pickaxes. You know, just weapons typical of many different warrior cultures at that time. Uh, to go with their legendarily intimidating horsemanship skills, according to some ancient reports, the Huns' horses would actually fight for them in battle with their teeth and hooves, biting and kicking their opponents. And there is no fucking way that's true. Uh, we can file that shit away in the uh, Swamp uh, Demon Witches folder. Uh, good old Jordanes. God, the guy loved to exaggerate. And, and the Huns rode atop their Satan steeds, stallions with mouths of uh, shark's teeth. Had, had lion's claws instead of hooves. And their tails were poisonous vipers. They could, they could also breathe fire like dragons. These dragon shark line viper horses could, um, they could also fly as well with uh, great bat wings. Yes, I remember that now. And if they bit you, they would not only just kill you, but turn you into a zombie vampire thing. Yes, a zombie vampire controlled by the master zombie vampire hun that rode the beast that slew a necromancer. They were necromancers. Damn those swamp demon witch necromancer scourge of God flying dragon horse fuckers. Uh, historian, former U.S. Army Lieutenant Colonel uh, Michael Lee Lanning describes the Hun's army in more realistic terms, writing, uh, Hun soldiers dressed in layers of heavy leather greased with liberal applications of animal fat making their battle dress both supple and rain-resistant. Leather-covered steel-lined helmets and chain mail around their necks and shoulders further protected the Hun cavalrymen or cavalrymen from arrows and sword strikes. The Hun warriors wore soft leather boots that were excellent for riding but fairly useless for foot travel. This suited the soldiers, for they were much more comfortable in the saddle than on the ground. And I'm not, I'm not sure what historical accounts he's able to pull that description from. Uh, I wasn't able to find anything written. I'm, I'm guessing he's interpreting that from... Uh, you know, some uh, archaeological evidence. Couldn't ascertain that for certain, though. Because uh, we don't we don't know for sure how Attila dressed. Uh, we don't even sure what kind of, like, horses, uh, you know, he and his men rode. Uh, experts still disagree over exactly what kind of horse breed Huns preferred. Many say that the horse breed that was most likely utilized was the Mongolian horse, the kind Genghis and the Mongol horde would ride many centuries later, uh, given that that species has been in residence in the Eurasian steppe for upwards of 150,000 years. Mongol horses are of a stocky build, Relatively short but strong legs, large head. They weigh about 500 to 600 pounds. Compare that to the uh, uh, Arden breed of draft horse, or Arden, 
uh, native to modern-day Belgium and France, which back in Attila's time likely weighed around 1,200 pounds, twice as big. Uh, a lot bigger now, actually. Uh, but, uh, you know, they were a draft horse bred to pull a plow, not ride into battle. Whatever horses the Huns rode, you know, they were just likely very comparable to whatever their opponents were riding. You know, it's not like they were out there riding miniature ponies, fighting enemies, riding fucking Clydesdales. But that would be cool if they did. That would present an awesome visual, right? How embarrassing to get dragged to death in a battle when you're being pulled by a little pony. But it would make it easier to fulfill that scenario I talked about. Faster, daddy, faster. And just like a little pony's trying to go as, you know, as hard as it can. Uh, as they migrated west, the Huns very well could have changed their presence or preference for the small Mongol horse for something better adapted to the old world forests of Eastern Europe as well. So they probably rode uh, various horses. Uh, comparing the Hun steeds with Roman horses, Vajishish, uh, Vajishish, oh, my tongue's not doing it right, but it's, it's, in a, it's in the ballpark. Fourth century Roman writer about whom very little is known in one of his two surviving works wrote, their body is angular with no fat at all on the rump. Guys, weird description of the horse's butt. Nor are there any protuberances on the muscles. The statue is rather long than tall. The trunk is vaulted and the bones are strong. And the leanness of the horses is striking. But one forgets the ugly appearance of these horses and this is set off by their fine qualities, their sober nature, cleverness, and their ability to endure any injuries very well. Any injuries? I, I doubt it. I bet if you cut one of their fucking heads off, they'd have a hard time, you know, enduring that. Uh, the Huns' horses sometimes, but I mean, they were hardy horse, hardy war horse. The Huns' horses sometimes served as uh, moving rations by providing the Hunnish warrior with milk, sucking on a little horse teat, uh, meat, even nourishing blood, right? Suppose where they would, uh, you know, bleed out a little bit like the uh, Mongolians, the Mongol hordes uh, would as well, especially when they tended to raid over large distances. Uh, the Mongol horde would later, you know, again, use their horses the same way as would other steppe warrior cultures. Uh, during shorter raids, the Huns depended on their expertise in hunting, thus mostly consuming game meat, often boiled, then dried without salt. Not sure how they were able to make the meat last back there with no salt. It's not like they had pressure cookers or, de- uh, you know, dehydrators. I mean, you try that today, just dry some meat without adding salt, throw it in your saddlebag, head out on the plains, munch on it for a few weeks, a few months. I'm thinking you're not going to feel too good. You know, probably not after a few days. Uh, clearly, they had some kind of system worked out for preventing spoilage. Hopefully, they had some spices. That shit sounds nasty. Uh, but yeah, they ate a lot of meat, probably not too many vegetables, probably very little fruit. Uh, the Huns lived simply true warrior lifestyle. Small group of Hunnish warriors acted as a self-sufficient unit that tactically functioned without requiring any unwieldy supply lines. So obviously that presented some battlefield advantages, right? They could just be on the go. They were just like in a big camp of infantrymen that had to be supplied, had to have, you know, carts pulled by other horses to get them food and stuff. Now they could just kind of like eat as they went. As for protective gear, the horsemen, especially the heavy horse archers, Furnished with small circular shields made of wood or hide that could be attached to the forearm, uh, complemented by various helmets like the typical, uh, you know, uh, Spangenhelm, Spangenhelm, Sp- Spangenhelm, uh, that classic medieval helmet you'll see in a reenactment of like medieval fighting or maybe in a Monty Python sketch, made of multiple, often metal pieces that gave way to a conical form, sometimes had a little metal strip that would drop down between your eyes, you know, protect the bridge of your nose. Uh, the Huns probably wore a, a wide variety of helmets and armor. A lot of it likely acquired as booty from raiding and plundering enemy camps, sacking their cities. On horseback, the Huns uh, would use loose formations to surround their enemies, tended to avoid melee combat as much as possible in the beginning stages of a conflict. Uh, conflict instead, their horse archers contingents uh, relied on precise missile barrages that affected the foe both physically and psychologically. To complement an intense scenario like this, right, they're raining down arrows, you know, running around their horses, you know, encircling the enemy. They would also uh, make harsh guttural sounds. You know, basically they would scream and growl. So you had these, this, you know, group of, you know, guys, these cavalrymen, you know, riding around you. Um, they're screaming, they're growling. They have really good bows or raining arrows upon you. Yeah, it's freaking you the fuck out. 
I'm sure that was terrifying to encounter. Fourth century Greek and Roman soldier and historian named uh, Amionis or Amianus Marcellinus, whose surviving books cover the years from 353 to 378, better than anyone else in Europe, uh, CE, gave an account of how the Hunnish horsemen quickly divided themselves into scattered bands from an organized formation, confusing their opponents enormously. He said they rushed forth into various directions of the Romans, almost in a disorderly manner, baffling the Romans. Uh, this was an intentional trick, order and chaos. And the Huns would then reorganize, overcome Roman soldiers and carefully coordinated charges, then break away and scatter again. Basically, they would alter, uh, you know, alternate between looking disorganized and organized and disorganized again. They would charge, then scatter, then reform, you know, charge again, then scatter. And the Romans didn't know what the fuck to do just not how they fought. And when the Huns ran into a walled fortress, unlike most other barbarian tribes of the day, they were also skilled with siege weaponry. The Huns weren't stopped by walls, like many of their barbarian peers at the time. They first gained insight on siege technology while fighting alongside the Romans, which they did often, and they may have also relied on Roman prisoners and deserters to help them build war machines. According to the chronicler uh, Priscus's description of the 443 CE siege of Nisus in present-day Serbia, the Huns used massive wheeled siege towers to move protected archers close to battlements and rain arrows into the cities, you know, into the cities, onto the city's defenders. They also pummeled the city's walls with huge battering ramps, which Priscus described as a beam with a sharp metal point suspended on chains hung loosely from a V-shaped timber frame. How terrifying to be inside the fortress. Hear that thing just slamming into your gate. Just boom, boom. They're just fucking screaming out there. You got guys on towers raining arrows. You know, they're about to bust through that fucking door. You know, this is all hell's going to break loose. Uh, while they weren't a cohesive kingdom before Attila and they didn't write any accounts of who they were, where they were from, what they were about, uh, they did write for organizational purposes, at least, that we know of. Beginning from the second century BCE onwards, uh, various Hun tribes uh, would keep, uh, sorry, second century CE, uh, they would keep census records regarding how many people and cattle they had, uh, you know, which people paid an income tax and tax on cattle. I guess it's found in archaeological digs. Records were kept in a written form. Decrees and laws issued generally in Latin, sometimes written in Germanic dialects. Uh, Huns had no kings, instead led by nobles, elite families who acted as chieftains or governors. Not, you know, by the way, till this time, they essentially had a king. Uh, over time, the governor, you know, one governor would emerge as the chief governor. Again, basically essentially a king and Attila would hold that position. As far as religion, we don't know for sure what they believe. No idea. Uh, we do know that they had slaves, but everyone did back then. You raid a village, sack a city, win a battle, etc. You take slaves home as part of your bounty. Uh, when they weren't fighting for their basic day-to-day clothes, the Huns wore round caps, pants, or leggings made from goat skin and either linen or rodent skin tunics. Hmm. Wish I could get a look at one of those old rodent skin tunics. That shit sounds ugly as fuck. Bunch of rat skins sewn together into one of those old uh, medieval blouse type things. Right? You, you have to be a, a pretty cool, fashionable, confident dude to pull off uh, wearing one of those today. That's a special kind of person that can rock a strong rodent skin tunic, right? It's a strong drip game. I feel like Machine Gun Kelly, maybe Pharrell, could pull off a, a rat skin tunic. I couldn't. Uh, Amy Honest, that Roman writer, reports that they wore these clothes until the clothes fell to pieces. Yeah, I bet they did. It's not like they could just, you know, hop on over to Target and buy a new, you know, rat skin tunic. And since they were off on the go, it's not like they could just head on over to their local, you know, uh, rat tunic dealer. Okay. I think I've laid out uh, some decent backdrop now. Enough with the tunic talk. Uh, you know, we, we know who the Huns were, basically what the landscape was like when they did their concrete under Attila, who they fought with and against. Now let's learn a bit more about the mysterious Huns and Attila in today's Time Suck timeline. After, you guessed it, today's mid-show sponsor break. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If you suddenly had an extra hour show up in your day every day, 
What would you do with it? Work out? Sleep? Read a book? Play Fortnite? Call your mom? Take judo lessons? Finally watch all the episodes of Shameless? A lot of us spend a lot of our time wishing we had more time. But why? Time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The bad news is that you're not going to get that 25th hour. But what you can probably do is reprioritize where you spend some of your time. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it with your time. This year, my health is more important to me than cranking out another stand-up special as fast as possible. So I canceled a tour, sacrificed that income, and decided to spend a lot of the time I just got back working out more, resting more, relaxing more, and enjoying time with family, friends, and just myself. And I'm so glad I did. I feel better than I have in a long time. And my better help therapist, Debbie, was very helpful in getting me to make the decision to pull back. Thank you, Debbie. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash TimeSuck today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash TimeSuck. After years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, if you've learned anything, it's that there's always a catch. So when you hear that Mint Mobile wireless plans are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan, you're probably thinking, what's the catch? Well, there isn't one, really. They cut the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. It's pretty simple. Mint Mobile is here to rescue you with premium wireless plans for just 15 bucks a month and no catch. All plans come with unlimited talk and text, plus high-speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. And you can use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and bring your phone number along with all your existing contacts over. And in addition to saving money, like over a 50% price drop from what I was paying before, the network quality, in my experience, is better than it was with my old service provider. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, Go to mintmobile.com slash timesuck. That's mintmobile.com slash timesuck. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash timesuck. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Thanks to Rocket Money, I canceled a membership to a gym I used to go to where I continued to pay a monthly membership for a couple of years after I stopped going. I didn't even recognize the charge. Rocket Money found it though, and it was canceled. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. Rocket Money will even try to negotiate lower bills for you by up to 20%. All you have to do is submit a picture of your bill and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. They'll deal with customer service for you. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. That's rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. I still love peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. But I'd stopped eating them almost entirely a while back because the bread on top of the sugar from the jelly made me so sleepy. All those carbs caused me to want to take a nap after eating them. Enter Hero Bread. Hero Bread takes the fear of carbs out of bread but still leaves you with that delicious bread taste. Hero Bread has 0 to 1 gram of net carbs, 0 grams of sugar, and it's high in fiber. 
It's also delicious and flavorful. The soft, fluffy experience you love when enjoying a savory breakfast burrito or mouth-watering cheeseburger. There is something for every craving, including sliced bread loaves, buns, and tortillas. And there are monthly small batch drops of indulgent favorites, like the 2 grams of Net Carbs Hero Croissant or the 1 gram of Net Carbs Hero Cheddar Biscuit. I had a loaf of Hero Classic White Bread delivered last week. Soft, fluffy, and delicious. 5 grams of protein per slice, and it's high in fiber. And the best part? Hero Bread doesn't taste healthy. It tastes like bread. It's great. Don't give up on being a breadhead. Hero Bread is offering 10% off your order. Go to hero.co and use code TIMESUCK at checkout. That's TIMESUCK at H-E-R-O dot C-O. And now we return to the first centuries of the Common Era, the first years after the death of Christ, to see how the Huns, especially under the guidance of Attila, their fiercest commander, wreaked havoc on Europe. Strap on those boots, soldier. We're marching down a time-suck timeline. A quick note regarding many of the dates in this timeline. Uh, They vary from source to source quite a bit. Uh, We went with the ones mentioned most frequently and what appear to be the best, most credible sources. Used our best judgment. Uh, Roughly 370 CE, the Huns show the fuck up. Their demon daddies are done fucking their mommy witches in the, in the swampy southern shores of the Sea of Azov. They crossed the Volga River in present-day Russia, conquered those Alans. Gotta love that name, by the way. Every video I find says it's pronounced just like the common, you know, just dude name of Alan. <laughs> it's like having a group of ancient people named like the Dans, the Joes, the Logans, the Tods, the Chads. Doesn't carry the same weight, right, as the Goths or the Vandals. Appear some ancient historian before facing the Goths, Vandals, and the might of Rome. The Huns first had to defeat the Tods, the Christophers, the Nathans, the Darens. Uh, after crossing the Volga River, the Huns destroyed the uh, Chernyahiv culture, absorbed much of its Germanic, Slavic, and Iranian, aka Sarmatian ethnic elements. The Chernyahiv culture lived in what is now Ukraine, Romania, Moldova, parts of Belarus. Uh, guess how much we know about them? That's that's right. Very fucking little. That's today's theme, if you haven't picked up on that yet. Uh, Based on archaeological discoveries, uh, they were thought to be a melting pot culture. Uh, A few years later, sometime around 372 CE, the Huns attacked some of those Ostrogoths, those eastern tribes of Germanic Goths who harassed the Roman Empire by frequently attacking their territories. By 376, the Huns had also begun to attack some Visigoths. The western collection of Goth tribes forced them to seek sanctuary within the Roman Empire. Some of the Alans, Goths, Visigoths also conscripted into the Hunnic infantry. While the Huns were primarily cavalry warriors, they would build infantry through alliances with people like the Goths or by capturing Goth soldiers, forcing them to fight or, you know, be executed. As the Huns dominated Goth and Visigoths lands, or Visigoths lands, they earned a reputation as the baddest new barbarians in town. Word reached some Romans that these motherfuckers were virtually unstoppable. Hun movements westward initiated a massive chain reaction, touching off the migration of peoples in Western Eurasia, mainly the Goths, West, and the Slavs to the West and North Northeast. The Huns' attack on these peoples at this time thought to have been uh, mostly for booty. Campaigns waged to extract tribute and mercenary fighting for their clients, not to build an empire of their own. And their attacks were already starting to piss off the Romans, right? Kicked out of their homes, the Goths, other barbarians are seeking refuge in Roman cities. After these initial invasions, the Huns began to build a reputation for being excellent mercenaries. A lot of mercenaries back then, right? They were one of many different cultures that sold their swords to the highest bidder or sold their, you know, bows as it was uh, the case and with, the, with the Huns. As early as 380 CE, a group of Huns uh, were, were given uh, 
Fodorati. There we go. Fodorati status and allowed to settle in the outer Roman province of uh, Pannonia, present-day Western Hungary, Eastern Austria, Northern Croatia, Northwestern Serbia, Northern Slovenia, and Northern Bosnia and Herzegovina. And that status just meant Rome saw them as allies at that time. Allies they could hire to fight their enemies, primarily the Goths. Hunnish mercenaries were hired by both Eastern and Western Roman Empire during the late 4th century, sometimes to fight one another in some civil wars. So much fucking fighting back then. Uh, So much constant bloodshed. Also in the late 4th century, the Huns still viewed as individual mercenary bands, sometimes fighting in loose coalitions, not as a Hunnic kingdom. From 395 to 396, Different bands of Huns attack Roman territories in present-day Turkey and Syria. By around 400, an area of uh, Pannonia in present-day Hungary has become the Huns' primary staging grounds for attacks on the East and West Roman territories. The name Hungary comes from the Huns, uh, Attila likely born in present-day Hungary. Uh, Attila is a central figure in Hungarian history. In 400 CE, Olden, the first Hun identified by name in contemporary sources, leads a group of Huns and Alans fighting... Fucking love that name, Alans. Lead some Huns, some Alans, some Randys, uh, fighting against uh, Radagaisus, Radagaisus, a Gothic king in defense of Italy. Uh, Olden was also known for defeating Gothic rebels, giving trouble to the Eastern Romans around the Danube River. Uh, also beheaded the Goth Gainus, or uh, Gainus, a Roman military commander turned traitor around 400-401, then sent his head to the Eastern Roman Emperor uh, Arcadius as a diplomatic gift. That's a very nice gift. You know, I've gotten a lot of great gifts in my day. More than the average meat sack. I've been very blessed. But I have yet to receive the head of an enemy. That's got to feel good, right? That's got to be way better than a nice shirt or some cake or a nice card, maybe with a gift card, you know, inside. Uh, Olden would turn on the Romans uh, just a few years later and go from ally to enemy. Sometime between 406, 408, Olden crosses the Danube, tries to pillage Thrace, an Eastern Roman province at the time. The Romans tried to buy Olden off to pay a tribute to avoid having some cities sacked. But the sum he wanted was too high. According to 5th century Greek Roman historian known as uh, Sozomen, Olden replied to a Roman commander who tried to talk him into not waging war and accepting accepting less money. Uh, He pointed to the rising sun and declared that it would be easy for him if he so desired to subjugate every region of the earth enlightened by that luminary. Not sure if that's true, but if it was, that's some badass shit to say to somebody. That's confidence. That's a a fucking alpha. That's some alpha shit to say to somebody. Uh, However, Olden would not conquer Thrace. When the Romans couldn't bribe him into not attacking, they bought off some of his soldiers. And that resulted in mass desertions, right? Just a lot of hired guns back then. Without an army strong enough for conquest, Olden escapes back across the Danube, after which history has very little to say about him. So, so much for setting the world on fire. Uh, It's thought he died in 412 at the latest. Backing up a bit now to 406 CE. That's the year Attila is born, maybe. We're not totally sure, but most historians think 406 CE. Uh, his father was Munzik. Not sure if I'm saying that right. Can't find a pronunciation guide. Uh, his mother's name has been lost to history. Attila's dad, not going to try and say his name again, appears in Hungary's national anthem under a translation of his name as an ancestor of the Hungarian people. Uh, Attila was born into a noble Hun family. His dad, a chieftain, brother of the men who would become Hun kings in the 420s and 430s, Ruga and Oktar. His dad may have been a king before Ruga and Oktar, the historian Jordanes. I don't know if you can fucking trust that guy. He wrote, uh, Attila was the son of Munzigus, whose brothers were Octar and Ruus. Their names are like, the the letters change a lot in sources, uh, who were supposed to have been kings before Attila, although not altogether of the same territories as he. Thanks, Jordanes. Uh, Attila's name means little father 
and according to some historians, may not have been his birth name, but might have been something given to him when he started getting powerful. Little Father? Is that right? That's a weird title. It's like something has to be lost in the translation there. Right? Bow down before our great and powerful ruler, Baby Daddy. Sounds <laughs> that's about the equivalent. Uh, uh, though ancient Rome considered the Huns to be barbarians, Attila's upbringing far from the brutish affair one might be led to expect. Right, Attila, along with his elder brother Bleda, born into the most powerful family in the Hunnic Empire, uh, Attila and Bleda, big deals from birth. Growing up, the siblings would have uh, had to learn all about archery, sword fighting, lasso use. Of course, how to ride and care for their horses, also military and diplomatic tactics. They would have been educated on both their allies and their uh, enemies. Some modern sources assert that the brothers were fluent, both Gothic and Latin, right? Uh, their dad seems to have died early in the boys' lives, and it appears that both Bleda and Attila were then designated to be rulers. The Huns had numerous co-rulers ruling different areas of the lands they controlled. Both boys thought to have been present at Hun war councils, uh, negotiations from an early age. Even before Attila became king, the Huns were a formidable fighting force, although they would become you know, more so later under his rule. Uh, their uncles, Ruga and Oktar, ruled together after their father's death. In the same year of Attila's birth, 406, a bitterly cold winter freezes the Rhine River, allowing hordes of Vandals, Alans, Burgundian warriors, another Germanic tribe, uh, the Suebi, to easily cross over into Rome's continental holdings. Vandals, other barbarians, now overrun the Roman province of Gaul. Not looking good for Rome, they need help. They need to ally more powerfully with the Huns. When Attila is 12 in 418 CE, they are allied heavily with the Huns, and he is sent to live in the court of Western Roman Emperor Honorius. The Huns are currently, yeah, strong allies, the Western Roman Empire. Here, Attila likely learns Latin, Roman history, philosophy, God knows what else. He received a top-tier Roman education, which would have been the best education in the Western world, if not the whole world at that time. You know, he was an educated man, not some barbaric savage. In exchange for Attila, Flavius Iatius, son of a prominent Roman general, was to keep living with the Huns. Now with Ruga, he had previously lived in the court of Olden. Iatius had a you know, also lived with some Visigoths in the court of their king, Alaric I, in another good faith hostage situation. Dates here get a little fuzzy. Iatus uh, also thought to have been born in 391, 15 years before Attila. So their periods of living with each other's people may not have perfectly overlapped, but both did spend time in their youths living with the leaders of people they would later wage war against. And Iatus uh, thought to have spent a lot of time in his youth living in non-Roman courts. Uh, the paths of Iatus and Attila will cross again later in life. Uh, and how wild this whole system. Important men from these empires exchanging sons, uh, nephews with one another as a way of ensuring that no one breaks their promises, right? Break your word and I'll fucking kill your kid. <laughs> I remember this from the Vlad the Impaler suck a couple years ago, right? That shit was still going on in Europe. Uh, in this kind of area of uh, Europe, you know, where the Huns would actually fight also in the uh, 15th century. Vlad of uh, Wallachia, had to go live with uh, the Ottomans for a while growing up under the same terms. What a tense way to spend your teen years. Never knowing if today is going to be the day when you find out that you're going to be executed because you're, you know, your uncle, or your dad, somebody broke the peace. Just please, uncle. Just please do not fuck things up with the Romans. Just do what they say. Uh, 422 CE. The Huns are back doing a bunch of pillaging in Thrace. And I guess Attila has returned from the court of Emperor uh, Honorius because, you know, He's not dead. Or maybe since Attila was in the court of the emperor of Western Rome and not Eastern Rome, maybe Honorius didn't give a fuck about Thrace. Maybe he was like, yeah, I don't care. Go fuck my uh, nephew Theodosius the Younger. Shut up. Yeah, get after it. Uh, after a bunch of raids, the Eastern Romans will agree to pay the Huns 50 pounds of gold every year to not keep taking their shit. 425 CE, Roman general Flavius Aetus 
uh, that dude who spent time growing up in the court of the Huns with Olden and Ruga, Attila's uh, uncle, uh, hires the Huns as mercenaries to fight for Rome. He wins enough battles to be named commander-in-chief of the Roman army in Gaul. He's moving on up. Uh, 430 CE, Attila's other uncle, or other uncle Octar, dies during a military campaign against the Burgundians. According to the writings of Socrates of Constantinople, so not that Socrates, not the Greek guy, uh, this guy's a 5th century Roman historian, uh, he wrote, For the king of the Huns, Optaros by name, having burst asunder in the night from Surfeit, the Burgundians attacked that uh, the Huns of Uptaros people, then without a leader, and although few in numbers and their opponents many, they obtained victory. Uh, Octar also referred to as Uptaros in some records. Uh, now Uncle Ruga is ruling alone. 432 and 433, somewhere, uh, somewhere in there in CE, uh, some tribes from Hunnic, uh, the Hunnic Confederation on the Danube fled to Roman territory, joined up with the Eastern Roman Emperor Theodosius II, aka Theodosius the Younger. And that pisses Ruga off. He demands through an experienced diplomat named Elsa the return of all these fugitives, these traitors. Otherwise, the peace, the treaty where Rome would pay them 350 pounds of gold a year uh, at this point would be finished and Eastern Rome would get fucked up. But then Theodosius the Younger catches a real lucky break and Ruga, he done's, uh, he done goes dies. He done goes and dies uh, sometime around 434 CE. How? We're not sure. Uh, again, according to Socrates of Constantinople, who's very pro-Roman, very pro-Christian, Theodosius II prayed to God and then God killed Ruga, or sometimes called Rugilla, uh, with a thunderbolt to the head. And then Ruga's men all died of the plague, and then fire consumed all their bodies and didn't even leave a trace of their remains. So I'm guessing he probably made that up. Guessing. Uh, after Ruga dies, the Eastern Romans sent a couple dudes to work out a new treaty with the Huns. The new agreement was that Rome's annual tribute would be 700 pounds of gold, and all Hun fugitives would have to be given back. Price is uh, consistently a lot higher than 50 pounds now of gold. Uh, this happens in 435. It's called the Treaty of Margus, signed in modern-day Serbia. Uh, fugitives were surrendered at that meeting and the two Huns of royal descent, uh, Mama, uh, I don't have their name, it just looks, Mamas, Mamas, and Atakum were then crucified by the Huns. They didn't want all their Hun buddies back to give them hugs and high fives. Some of these guys were traitors, right, who'd shifted their allegiance away from the Huns to Rome. The treaty gives the Romans a break from the constant threat of the Huns. They could then focus on defending their territories from other fuckers, Right, they're having problems with the Vandals and the uh, Sassanid Empire right now. Sassanids, uh, yet another em- enemy of Rome. Sassanids, the Persian Empire, were based mainly in present-day Iran at this time. They had no shortage of people to fight back then. Upon Uncle Ruga's death, Attila and his bro, Bleda, they inherited an empire that stretched from the Rhine region in the west to the borders of the uh, Sassanian Iran and the Caucasus in the east. Attila would uh, you know, make some moves pretty quickly once he became co-ruler. Early in his rule, Attila allied with Western Roman general, former Hun hostage, Iadius. And Iadius was a knowledgeable dude, great ally to have. His father was a Scythian soldier, one of those people who, like the Huns, are excellent horse riders. Mother was a noblewoman in, uh, of Italian descent. His heritage made him uniquely suited to deal with the challenges facing Rome at the dawn of the 5th century. As a young boy, right, he'd spent time in the camp of the Visigoth king, Alaric. He became familiar with their uh, tactics, knowledge that would serve him well in later years. He'd gotten into the Huns' tactics firsthand as well, and now he becomes tight with Attila. Uh, 435 CE, Aetus hires his buddies, the Huns, to fight against the Vandals and the Franks. The Hun army at the time was one enormous cavalry unit that struck their adversaries quickly, right, as we talked about earlier, neither asking for nor offering mercy. Historian, former U.S. Army Lieutenant Colonel Michael Lee again, Michael Lee Lanning, describes the Hun army thusly, relying on mobility and shock effect, Attila rarely committed his soldiers to close, sustained combat. He preferred to approach his enemy, using the terrain to hide his troops until he was within arrow range. 
While one rank fired at high angles to cause the defenders to raise their shields, another fired directly into the enemy lines. Once they had inflicted sufficient casualties, the Huns closed in to finish off the survivors. So, very smart way to fight. They were not idiots. Uh, Between 435-438 CE, the Huns attack Sassanid Persia, winning some battles but eventually being defeated in present-day Armenia. Uh, Beginning in 436 CE, Aetius and the Huns fuck up the Burgundians. While the main strength of the Huns' army was fighting in Persia, some Hun mercenaries hired to fight alongside the Western Romans. Uh, To me, all this collaboration, you know, obviously dispels the myth that, again, the Huns were demonic barbarians. You know, they were captured, uh, or I'm sorry, they were cultured and trusted enough to fight alongside the Romans, right, to be a strong ally. Together, the Romans and Huns drove out the Burgundians, defeated them, the Burgundians driven back into modern-day France. Attila and Bleda would continue to give Aetius military support, allowing the Romans to squash threats from both internal revolts Eastern and Western empires uh, embroiled in numerous civil wars on top of all the other shit they're dealing with uh, during Attila's lifetime. Uh, Rome, you know, uh, dealing with a lot of things, a lot of Germanic tribes, uh, they got the Sassanids, the fucking each other, uh, so much. A lot of fires that were constantly trying to put out. You never had to worry about being unemployed if you were a Roman soldier. Uh, another treaty between Eastern Rome and the Huns gets signed in 439 CE, basically extending, you know, the treaty of Margus that they'd already signed earlier. Uh, the Romans promised to return all Hun refugees who had fled into Roman territories, agreed not to enter pacts or treaties with enemies of the Huns, promised to establish fair trading rights. And of course, you know, they had to keep making gold payments now to Attila and Bleda. Attila's fighting with Western Rome and extorting Eastern Rome. Uh, the Huns pledge again to not attack Rome, to not enter into pacts or treaties with Rome's en- enemies and to defend the Danube frontier and the provinces of the Roman Empire. After this treaty, the Huns turn their attention east again to the Sassanid Empire and are driven back again by the Sassanids towards the Great Hungarian Plain, right? Their home base. Fucking Sassanids! Tuffos. Uh, then after defeat in the east, the Huns start to think, do we really have to honor that treaty with eastern Rome? The Roman troops uh, who once guarded the border are currently deployed to Sicily for fighting there, and the Huns see this as an opportunity for easy plunder. They claim the Romans had violated the Margus Treaty by not sending back all their Hun refugees in Roman territory and further claim that a Roman bishop had made a secret trip into Hun territory to desecrate Hun graves and steal buried valuables. So they wanted the bishop, you know, uh, to come see them so they could punish him. Are these claims true or did they just make up some excuses to attack? Historians seem to think they just made up some excuses because they wanted to attack. Uh, Theodosius the Younger sends his general Flavius Aspar to try to negotiate with Attila and Bleda. Doesn't go well. Attila shows Aspar, you know, some disturbed graves, but there was no way of telling whose graves they were, who had disturbed them, what may have been taken from them. With no proof of a crime, Aspar refuses to turn the bishop over to the Huns, claims he has no knowledge of Hun refugees hiding from Attila and Bleda on Roman soil. The Huns insist, but Aspar doesn't give in or back down. Negotiations reach a stalemate. Aspar returns to Constantinople to report these developments to Theodosius. And before the Romans can decide what to do about it all, the Huns are already attacking them. 441, the Eastern Roman Empire's army is on its way to Sicily, right? They were supposed to then go to Northern Africa. Just never stop fighting, just endlessly roaming from one territory to another, trying to squash rebellions, fighting off barbarians. Uh, they hear that the Huns, though, are now invading the Balkans. God damn it, Roman territory. So they have to turn around and head back. They just made it to Sicily. The Huns, led by Attila and Bleda, sacked numerous very profitable trade cities that were near the Eastern Roman capital of Constantinople. Bad news for the Romans. The city of Nisus, especially important because it was the birthplace of Roman Emperor Constantine the Great. The Huns raise it so badly, it wouldn't be rebuilt for another century. About the ravaged city, historian Priscus would write, When we arrived at Nisus, we found the city deserted, as though it had been sacked. Only a few sick persons lay in the churches. 
We halted at a short distance from the river in an open space, for all the ground adjacent to the bank was full of the bones of men slain in war. Man, I bet those sights were just outrageously horrific back then. So many dead bodies. Uh, Their offensive was especially successful because it was, yeah, completely unexpected. Theodosius II had been so confident that the Huns would keep the treaty uh, that he refused to listen to any counsel that suggested otherwise. The Huns were, uh, you know, proving themselves to be capable of really fucking up Roman cities right now to protect their uh, territories from further destruction. Emperor Valentinian, the third of the Western Roman Empire, and Theodosius, the younger of the Eastern Roman Empire, uh, both are paying the Huns more tributes now. Now to keep the Huns from further destruction, they're paying them 1,400 pounds of gold a year. Price keeps going up. Attila and Bleda withdraw, uh, but then Rome fails to pay up as they had expected them to, so the Huns quickly invade again. By 443, the Huns had reached as far south as Constantinople had sacked a number of additional cities along the way. Attila forces Theodosius into yet another new treaty in the fall of 443. They get a lump sum of 6,000 pounds of gold to bring back home and the expectation of another hefty annual tribute. The Huns return home once more to the great Hungarian plain. Right, they got a bunch of fucking plunder with them. Attila and Bleda lead their troops back and then Bleda vanishes from the historical record. So what happened to him? We actually have no idea. But of course, because the Huns were evil, those fucking swamp demons. Uh, Tell him must have killed him. Probably, probably used his mouth. Probably bit him to death. Probably, probably ate him to death. Ripped his guts out with his teeth. Ate him raw. Uh, maybe turned into a werewolf. Howled at the moon. Priscus writes that three years after the offensive, Bleda, king of the Huns, was assassinated as a result of the plots of his brother Attila. Uh, Jordanes later wrote, when Attila's brother Bleda, who ruled over a great part of the Huns, had been slain by Attila's treachery, the latter united all the people under his own rule gathering also a host of the other tribes which he then held under his sway so he sought to uh, he sought to subdue the foremost nations of the world the romans and the visigoths uh, his army is said to have numbered 500,000 men he was a man born into the world to shake the nations the scourge of all the lands who in some way terrified all mankind by the dreadful rumors noised abroad concerning him he was haughty in his walk, rolling his eyes here and there so that the power of his proud spirit appeared in the movement of his body. He was indeed a lover of war, yet restrained in action, mighty in counsel, gracious to supplicants and lenient to those who were once received into his protection. He was short of stature, with a broad chest and a large head. His eyes were small, his beard thin and sprinkled with gray, and he had a flat nose with a swarthy complexion showing the evidences of his origin. Doesn't sound too evil there. It sounds like a badass ancient leader. A uh, man of war in a time of so much war. Uh, some scholars have suggested that Bleda was not killed by Attila, despite these uh, accounts, but rather may have been killed during the Huns' campaign against the Eastern Roman Empire and just, you know, did not head back to the Hungarian plain. However, he died in 445 CE. Attila becomes the sole leader of the Huns and one of the most formidable leaders of 5th century Europe. Uh, and Attila was not finished with the Eastern Roman Empire. In 446, after Theodosius II refused to pay him gold, yet again, that dude had a Real hard time sticking with the fucking payment plan. Uh, he launched another campaign against them. Only a few months into it, an earthquake struck Constantinople, the empire's capital, forcing its citizens to hastily rebuild its walls. Eastern Roman Empire now panicking, very worried that the Huns are going to destroy their weakened capital. They send their soldiers to meet the Huns away from the city, keep them from reaching the capital walls. The 4th century Greek Roman historian uh, Ammianus Marcellinus wrote that the Huns attacked and pillaged forts and cities, lacerating almost all the territory surrounding the capital. Attila and his Huns went on to sack more than 70 cities in just the Balkans and penetrated deep into Greece, but were stopped at Thermopylae, leading to yet another peace treaty negotiation with harsh penalties for the Romans. The Huns never did take Constantinople, but they got close enough to scare the shit out of them 
a pro-Roman account of their invasion before signing this new treaty written by a 5th century bishop in Asia Minor, Hypatius of Gangra, uh, survives and says, The barbarian nation of the Huns, which was in Thrace, became so great that more than 100 cities were captured, and Constantinople almost came into danger, and most men fled from it. And there were so many murders and bloodlettings that the death could not be numbered. I, for they took captive the churches and monasteries and slew the monks and maidens in great numbers. All right, so not, naughty guys there. Naughty guys. A lot of naughty people back here, back in this time. The Hunnic Empire was now at the height of its power and reach. Attila ruled over Scythia, Germania, Scandinavia, uh, referred to as the islands of the ocean. There aren't a lot of accounts of his victories in these places uh, and exactly where his territory extended to because Roman historians didn't write much about them. Not with uh, any, you know, real specific details. Uh, Guess what happens in 448 CE? Emperor Theodosius enters into another new treaty with Attila. Uh, Attila wants more money. And this time he wants the Romans to evacuate a strip of land stretching 300 miles east from modern Belgrade and up to 100 miles south of the Danube River. To negotiate the treaty, the historian Priscus accompanies Maximinius, the head of the Byzantine embassy representing Emperor Theodosius II on a diplomatic mission to Attila's court. It was from this visit that Priscus would later recount the story of a dinner with Attila that took place in one of Attila's many houses. Now, this is the best firsthand account we have of someone actually spending time with Attila. Priscus wrote that Attila's house was, you know, very nice, greater than the rest of the houses around it. So no surprise there. Constructed of decorative polished wood with little thought to making any part of the place for defense. Uh, The dinner was at three o'clock. So early ass dinner. Priscus entered the house bearing gifts to Attila's wife. Her name was Kreka. She had three sons. Priscus and the embassy of Eastern Romans were placed at the end of the table farthest from Attila, but still in his presence. This was meant to show that he was greater than the Roman guests and that Attila considered his people to be more important than Priscus and the Roman embassy. As Priscus and the Eastern Roman embassy stood, they followed some cultural tradition of being served tea from the cupbearers, then prayed, had a drink before uh, having a seat at the table. The seats were arranged parallel to the walls. Attila sat in the middle of one side of the table, the right side of Attila reserved for his honored chieftains. Everyone else, including Priscus and the Roman embassy, sat down on the left. After being seated, everyone raised a glass to pledge one another with wine. Uh, Once the cupbearers left, another attendant came in with a platter of meat, followed by bread, other food at the time. Sounds fucking delightful. I bet they can make some uh, tasty-ass meat. Uh, They do not exactly come across as evil, dumb savages here. All the food was served onto plates of silver and gold, Silver and gold. Uh, Priscus also notes that Attila didn't use any silver or gold plates himself, but instead used a cup made of wood. He's very modest. Uh, his attire, not very grand. Some of his chieftains dressed up a little fancier than he was. Uh, once the first round was finished, everyone present stood and drank again to the health of Attila. Uh, when evening arrived, torches were lit. Songs were sung about Attila's victories. Sounds like a fucking long-ass tedious dinner at this point. Also present, a second Roman embassy that had traveled to Attila's court alongside Priscus's group. Uh, this other delegation, however, not as friendly. They had the covert objective of assassinating Attila. And Attila uncovered this attempt. And then that fucking demon barbarian did not have the would-be assassin tortured or executed. Instead, according to the story, Attila sent the man back to Constantinople carrying a letter that detailed exactly how Attila had uncovered the plot, presumably to embarrass you know, the Romans, who may have assumed that a dumb barbarian couldn't figure it out. And that letter also carried a demand for, you guessed it, more gold, which they paid. Then the dude who kept making treaty after treaty with the Huns, uh, Eastern Emperor Theodosius II, died unexpectedly, excuse me, in a riding accident on July 2nd, 450 CE. Um, For some reason, I pictured him falling over on a bicycle uh, and I just felt compelled, compelled to share that thought. 
Like he fell, of course, from a horse, but a bicycle would be so much funnier back then. Just random Roman emperor on a bike. Uh, he'd been in power for almost 50 years. He had a long run, uh, but he didn't end up with a son to step in and rule after he passed. Uh, the crown would pass to a dude whose life we know very little about before he became emperor, uh, Marcion, some sort of personal assistant, apparently, before he became emperor. That's a weird leap. Some uh, later sources will state that Theodosius uh, willed the throne to Marcion on his deathbed. Uh, Pulcheria, Theodosius II's sister, agrees to marry Marcion, which legitimized his rule, and he ascended to the emperorship August 25th, 450 CE. And almost immediately after becoming emperor, Marcion revokes Theodosius's uh, treaties with Attila, no more money, go fuck yourself. He proclaimed that he might give Attila some gifts of gold if he was friendly and a helpful ally, but Attila would get his ass beat if he attempted to raid the Eastern Roman Empire. And then Attila was like, all right, okay, that's cool. I get it. I get it. No, we've been a problem. Uh, You know what? Sorry for the hassles over the years. Uh, No hard feelings on this side. Uh, Let bygones be bygones, I say. (laughs) Water off a duck's back. You know, all that. No, he's pissed. But he was also busy making plans to fuck with the other Romans now. Attila was preparing to invade the Western Roman Empire under the guise of helping Western Roman Emperor Valentinian III battle the Visigoths. Attila rejected, of course, Marcion's proposal, demanded tribute, but did not. this did not alter his invasion plans. He wasn't going to deviate from his plan to go west and attack these guys right now. He, he led his horde from, uh, Pun- oh my gosh, Pannonia in the spring of 451 CE into the Western Roman Empire. And who would he face off with? His old friend, Flavius Iatius. Crazy times. Friend turns into foe. Flavius Aetius, uh, who was the supreme commander of the Western Roman army, organized the defense and called upon the Visigoths. I keep uh, waffling in my head. Visigoths? Visigoths? Uh, Franks, Burgundians, Alans. Just too many fucking tribes to keep track of their pronunciations. Uh, even some Celtic uh, Armoricans and other tribal groups, around 60,000 in all, to help him. Uh, the Armoricans, uh, uh, you know, lived uh, in what is now the Brittany region of France. Uh, some Celts showing up in the story. Some of the few left in mainland Europe. Uh, Tillis forces were made up of Gepids, Alans, Skiri, yet another Germanic tribe from somewhere north of the Black Sea. Some Heruli, another Germanic tribe, possibly from Scandinavia. Some uh, Rugians, more Germans from south of the Baltic Sea, along with Franks, Burgundians, Ostrogoths. How are both Attila and Aetius allied with people they've been fighting? Because these people were not part, again, of uh, organized kingdoms. Members of tribes organized into loose coalitions. You know, those coalitions shifted all around all the time. Uh, they would t- tend to a lot of mercenaries in these tribes. You know, that's why Attila was also uh, losing Huns who were defecting to the Eastern Romans. That's why, uh, you know, he often fought alongside uh, the Romans. Again, these groups routinely, you know, hired to fight one another, fought alongside whoever they thought would, uh, you know, lead them into the best chance for the most plundering. And again, I think of Game of Thrones. A lot of alliances coming and going, shifting around all the time. Uh, Attila sacked a few cities in Gaul before meeting Aetius, uh, by meeting, before meeting Aetius' forces at the Battle of the Catalonian Plains in Northeast Gaul. This will be the most heavily documented battle Attila will fight in. And before we get into its description, Attila wasn't only fighting in Gaul for money. What led him to turn against his old buddy, Aetius? A lady. Hail Lucifina. Princess, uh, Princess Honor, Honor, oh my gosh, Honoria. There we go. Princess Honoria. Smart, conniving, and ruthless, Honoria possessed all the attributes befitting a Roman emperor, except for that pesky Y chromosome. Uh, Justa Grata Honoria was the daughter of Western Emperor Constant, uh, Constantinus III, who had reigned for seven months in 421 before dying. Her mother was Gala Placidia, a daughter of Western Emperor Theodosius I. Carried into captivity by the Goths as a child, Gala had married uh, Atoff, king of a large group of Visigoths. She had a son with his king, 
But before some possible Visigoth-Roman merger could occur, the son would die as a toddler. Not long after that, her husband, the king, assassinated. She returned to the Roman Empire, actually rescued by her soon-to-be second husband, Constantinus. She uh, has two children with him, first Honoria, then Valentinian III. As a result of various family ties, Valentinian was actually the son, grandson, great-grandson, cousin, and nephew twice over of Roman emperors. He's highly, uh, uh, got a great pedigree to be emperor. Uh, Valentinian described as less than smart and not a great ruler, became the Roman emperor in the West at just five years old in October of 424. So a puppet king. Mommy now calling most of the shots. Honoria not happy about this arrangement. As a young girl, she watched as her dim-witted five-year-old brother, Valentinian III, crowned emperor of the Western Roman Empire, uh, while she is set aside to await a suitable marriage. Hardly content to lead a quiet and chaste life, Honoria rebelled, uh, slept around a lot, slept her way through the royal court while still in her teens. Uh, at one point, she seduced her brother's royal chamberlain, an officer who manages the household of a ruler, uh, Eugenius, and together they plotted to murder Valentinian and seize power. But her scheme was exposed. Eugenius was executed. Honoria sent to a convent in Constantinople where she would wait to be married off to an elderly Roman senator named Flavius Bassus Herculanus. Life as a nun was a fate worse than death for Honoria. She spent her years at the nunnery, plotting one escape attempt after another. Uh, still wanted to kill her brother, still wanted to rule Rome. So uh, what she do? She gets desperate. She reaches out to the only man she thinks is powerful enough to take the throne from Valentinia and share it with her, Attila the Hun. This is some serious Game of Thrones shit. Honoria reminds me of Cersei Lannister. Or maybe her mom, Gala, with Cersei. Uh, from 445 to 450, Attila was at the height of his power. His prestige, influence in Europe, enormous. The perfect man for this job, right? He uh, took a lot of wives. There's always room for another wife. Uh, Honoria got the barbarian's attention with a mutually beneficial proposal in 450 before Valentinian dies and Marcion assumes the emperorship. If Attila would rescue her, she said she would fuck the ever-loving shit out of him. She would try to actually suck his dick off of his body, then put it back on, then try to rip it back off with her pussy and all that was just a warm-up for some butt stuff or she said she'd marry him and he would get half of the western empire as her dowry uh maybe the other stuff was implied i don't know i can't remember right now uh, she included a ring in her letter honoria was actually in no position to rightfully offer any of this shit uh, she couldn't offer any portion of the roman empire she was uh, betting that after marrying her attila would conquer the whole empire and you know she'd be queen attila had secretly been planning to move against rome for years so he was happy to get this letter you know just a nice nice little nudge Last nudge he needed to go uh, go and strike now. Wasting no time, Attila claims her as his bride, demands the that half the territory of the Western Roman Empire should be given to him as dowry from Valentinian. Uh, Valentinian was not cool with that. He was furious. He threatens to put Honoria to death, but then Valentinian dies, which makes it super hard for him to kill his sister. Now Marcion's military would have to face off with the Huns. Uh, and nothing of Honoria's life after her entry with Attila is recorded. Uh, she was played by Sophia Loren in the 1954 film Attila. Uh, Sophia Loren, man, one of the most beautiful women of all time. All right, so backing up now to the big battle of the Catalonian plains. Now we know how we got there. Uh, fought because Attila wanted to marry Honoria and rule Rome with her. In 451, Attila sets out with a large army composed not only of his own Huns, but also of a lot of those various Germanic motherfuckers. This army pours into Rome's Belgic provinces, takes Metz on April 7th, 451, captures many other cities, lays waste to the land, whole bunch of sacking commences. Upon learning of the invasion, Flavius Aetius uh, moves his army rapidly from Italy to Gaul. According to 5th century Roman historian and bishop in Gaul, Sidonius uh, Apollinarius, uh, he was leading a force consisting of few and sparse auxiliaries without one regular soldier. 
Aetius immediately attempts to persuade Theodoric I, king of the Visigoths, to join his fight. Allegedly, Theodoric learned how few troops Aetius had with him, decided it was wiser to wait and oppose the Huns in his own lands, so Aetius then turns to the former Praetorian prefect of Gaul, Avitus, for help. Avitus is able to persuade Theodoric to join the Romans, and also a number of other wavering kind of barbarian residents in Gaul. Uh, the coalition assembles in Arles, a city along the Mediterranean coast in present-day France, before moving west to meet the Goths at Toulouse, where they gathered more forces and supplies. The combined army then marches to present-day uh, Orléans, France, re- reaching there on June 14th. Uh, previous suck subject Joan of Arc would fight a big battle in Orléans in 1421. Back in 451, the Romans got busy fortifying and strengthening Orléans before Attila's approach. Attila's army would retreat eastward from this fortification. Aetius knew the Huns well, knew how to defend against them. Orléans threatened but never sieged. Uh, the Roman army then pursued Attila's forces, overtakes them in Troyes, an, appoint- an important meeting place of Rhodes in present-day France, and a battle is fought north of the city. The battle began in the afternoon, lasted into the night. Thousands and thousands die, including King Theodoric of the Visigoths. Uh, back when kings actually fought firsthand in battle, which is fucking wild to imagine. It's never explicitly stated, but Attila thought to have fought, you know, uh, you know, firsthand with his Huns as well. Uh, he repeatedly scared the shit out of people by claiming to own the Sword of Mars, a.k.a. a sword that actually belonged to the Roman god of war. This sword, according to Jordanes, discovered by accident. When a certain shepherd beheld one heifer of his flock limping and could find no cause for this wound, he anxiously followed the trail of blood and at length came to a sword it had unwittingly trampled on while nibbling the grass. He dug it up and took it straight to Attila. He rejoiced at this gift and being ambitious, thought he had been appointed ruler of the whole world and that through the sword of Mars, supremacy in all wars was assured to him. So probably just some more fanciful imaginings of Jordan's, but cool story. Uh, But leaders fighting in battle. I mean, imagine that now. Imagine how sad that would look now. Uh, Picture Joe Biden (laughs) heading out to the Middle East, uh, tagging along with like US special forces, right? To take out a terrorist uh, cell, you know, just firsthand somewhere. I just, I don't think he'd fare too well. Uh, you, you fellas go ahead without me. I'll, I'll catch up in a second. Oh, old Joe doesn't want to hold you back. Uh, I'll, be, I'll, be, I'll be right there. Don't, don't worry about that. I uh, just need to lay down for a second. Just get a bit of shut-eye. And then uh, pew-pew. You know, boy, howdy. <laughs> uh, I'll cause a ruckus. You know, just once I wake up. Uh, the Battle of the Catalonian Plains has been described as one of the bloodiest military conflicts in history. The first time until his forces halted in an invasion of Western Europe. Historian Jack Watkins author of The Greatest Battles in History, an encyclopedia of classic warfare, uh, describes it thusly, The Romans occupying the high ground quickly succeeded in pushing the Huns back in confusion, and Attila had to harangue them to return to the fight. During fierce hand-to-hand fighting, King Theodoric of the Visigoths was killed. But rather than discouraging the Visigoths, their king's death enraged them, and they fought with such spirit that the Huns were driven back to their camp as night fell. For several days, the Huns did not move from their encampment, but their archers succeeded in keeping the Romans at bay. The desertion of the frustrated Visigoths allowed Attila to withdraw his army from the battlefield and with his wagons of booty intact. The Romans did not pursue him, but his aura of invincibility had been shattered. The next day, the Romans found that Attila was strongly entrenched after he left uh, uh, behind his wagons, and it was said that he had prepared a funeral pyre for himself to die in rather than fall into the hands of his foes. That's some badass shit. Uh, Thorismund, Theodoric's son, was burning to avenge his father's death, wanted to storm the entrenchment, but Flavius Aetius said, No way, Jose! Ah, I don't think so. Or something like that. Uh, he persuaded Thorismund to return to Toulouse, saying Thorismund's brothers might use the opportunity to grab his throne. Also persuaded the Franks to return immediately to their own lands. 
and then he permitted Attila to escape with his army. Why would he do that? It's never made entirely clear. Some historians say that he didn't want to destroy the Huns' empire, uh, just protect Roman power. And he had in mind that the Huns could later be allies again one day, right? Like they'd been years before. Others say he also didn't want to increase the prestige of his Visigoth allies by giving them a decisive victory, making them think that they were stronger than Rome. Both sides sustained great losses. The amount is not known, but overall it was a triumph for the Roman Empire and what historians generally consider Attila's first defeat, which is weird. Uh, talk about that in a second. The biggest casualty of all was probably uh, what the battle did to Attila's power, showing him uh, as someone who could be fought off. You know, something people, people previously thought impossible, people other than the Sassanids, historians seem to forget how they'd already fought off the Huns a few times, but you know, whatever. So many sources act like those earlier defeats never happened. Uh, despite this failed campaign into Gaul, Attila not done attacking. He launched an attack on Italy the very next year in 452, still claiming that Honoria was his rightful bride. He wasn't ready to stop trying to claim the Western Roman Empire. The Hun army ravaged much of the northern part of present-day Italy, even capturing and raising the city of Aquileia after a three-month siege, leaving it unrecognizable. Uh, today, Roman ruins in this small city in north, uh, northeastern Italy near the Slovenian border are a UNESCO World Heritage Site. Uh, the reputation the Huns had for brutality and indiscriminate slaughter, well-known, sent the people of this area uh, fleeing for their lives with whatever they could carry. And shit like this, again, can make Attila really look like an evil barbarian, but the Romans sent plenty of people fleeing for their lives and raped plenty of people and butchered women and children and sacked cities to the ground, you know, but their enemies just didn't typically get to write about it. Uh, whole populations fled their cities and villages for safer regions. Some accounts say that communities became, uh, some of these communities were fleeing, became, uh, you know, what became Venice, Italy, as a result of the attacks when residents fled to small islands in the Venetian lagoon. However, other accounts list Venice as uh, already having been around. So I'm not so sure about that. Might be some more legend building there. Some myth making to add to Attila's fearsome lore. Uh, Attila's old buddy, Aetus, did pursue Attila in Italy, but he didn't have the same army, army he had back in Gaul. Remember, he sent everybody away. Just a shadow force now. He wasn't able to do much more than just kind of harass him. Attila finally halted his advance at the River Po. Didn't really make it down into the peninsula. This river lies at the northern edge of the Italian peninsula. Uh, by this point, some historians think that disease and starvation may have taken hold in Attila's camp. Other sources from the period credit an embassy sent by Emperor Valentinian with getting the Huns to leave Italy. Uh, this embassy included Pope Leo I, who convinced Attila to return back beyond the Danube River to their own territory. Uh, the 5th century chronicler uh, Prosper of Aquitaine wrote, our most blessed Pope Leo, trusting in the help of God, who never fails the righteous in their trials, undertook the task, uh, accompanied by Avenius, a man of consular rank, and the prefect, Ty oh, Trigetius, and the outcome was his faith had was what his faith had foreseen. For when the king had received the embassy, he was so impressed by the presence of the high priest that he ordered his army to give up warfare, and after he had promised peace, he departed beyond the Danube. I, I fucking doubt it. Uh, many historians doubt this uh, this uh, narrative here. They don't think that the Pope would have somehow convinced Attila to just be like, you know what, I don't want to fight anymore. I'll just go home. Or uh, that he would have even traveled to talk to someone considered a barbarian, a pagan sack of Roman cities face-to-face -face like that. Another 5th century Roman chronicler and bishop in modern-day Portugal, Hydatius, wrote, the Huns who had been plundering Italy and who had also stormed a number of cities were victims of divine punishment, being visited with heaven-sent disasters, famine and some kind of disaster, thus crushed, they made peace with the Romans and all retired to their homes. So who the fuck knows why Attila left? Uh, <laughs> uh, Aquileia fell to the Huns sometime in mid-August, and within a month afterwards, their army was already heading back home. Maybe Attila just wanted to get home to Hungary that fall in order to avoid malaria outbreaks. 
which tended to start in northern Italy around October, as well as before the snows closed various passes in the Alps. His army would have already been taking uh, with them booty and prisoners, which would have uh, slowed their march. Another factor which would have encouraged him to leave Italy that fall. And perhaps he intended to come back to Italy the next year, but that wouldn't happen because he died and he wasn't able to keep fighting as some sort of swamp demon witch zombie, unfortunately. Uh, Attila dies in 453 CE on his wedding night. Attila had just married his latest wife, a young woman named uh, Ildiko, and he celebrated with great feasting. And the feast, and the following morning, uh, guards broke into his room, found him dead in his bed, his bride weeping over him. Uh, no wound. It seemed as though Attila had hemorrhaged through his nose and choked on his own blood. Maybe he drank himself to death that night. There are other theories. Possible that Attila was assassinated by his new wife in a conspiracy with, you know, one of any number of enemies. Whatever the reason, when he died, his Hun army fell into an intense period of grief until his horsemen smeared their faces with blood, rode slowly in a steady circle around the tent which held his body, cut their long hair, slashed their cheeks, you know, wanted to literally cry blood for their leader. There was a day of grief, fasting, funeral games, combination of mourning and a celebration that was common in the ancient world. Uh, Game of Thrones again. Now I'm thinking of the Dothraki. Hans remind me of the Dothraki. Uh, that night, Attila buried in three coffins. One nested inside the other, the outer one of iron, the middle one of silver, the inner one of gold. According to legends of the time, when Attila's body was buried, those who buried him were killed so that his burial place would never be discovered. And that was done so he could have what was considered the most honorable death possible. Following his funeral, his empire was divided among his three sons, uh, Elik, uh, Dengizich, Ernak, and they would fight each other to become his successor. They would fight uh, more for the greatest share of the territory. They would squander resources and allow the kingdom to fall apart. By 469 CE, only 16 years after Attila's death, his fragile empire was gone. The Gepid king, Arderic, would revolt against the Huns, get many other Germanic tribes to join the revolt. Uh, the Romans would refuse to pay Attila's sons tributes. His son, Dengizich, decided to invade the Roman Empire, but his brothers declined to join him, and so he didn't do that well. The Romans got the Goths to join them in fighting these weakened Huns, and Dengizich was killed in 469, his head cut off, given to the Romans in Constantinople as a gift, put on a pike, left out to rot for all to see. And that would be the end of the Huns' rule in the West, though definitely not the end of their legacy. Uh, let's talk about this interesting legacy a bit after today's timeline. Good job, soldier. You've made it back. Barely. After Attila's empire collapsed with his son's deaths, an empire that was never really a cohesive empire, it seems, but rather a uh, you know coalition of Hunnic tribes and primarily Germanic tribes uh, that they'd recently conquered who weren't quite yet ready to revolt, uh, the Huns were absorbed into other tribes and other kingdoms, and they quickly faded from history books, right? Fading almost as quickly as they'd showed up, almost as mysteriously. Uh, today, people still wonder who the descendants of the Huns are. Beginning in the high Middle Ages, Hungarian sources have claimed descent, uh, you know, descent from or a close relationship between the Hungarians and the Huns. The name Hungary, as I said before, derived from Hun. Uh, but, you know, there might not actually be any sort of direct lineage linking modern Hungarians with the ancient Huns. The anonymously written The Deeds of the Hungarians, penned sometime in the early 13th century, the first Hungarian source to mention that the line of Hungarian kings were descendants of Attila. And a few other sources from the same era claim that Hungarian kings were directly descended from Attila. But that might have been propaganda. The Hungarian kings, you know, or the Hungarians being Huns would have helped legitimize their conquest of Pannonia hundreds of years, you know, ago. Linguists do not think that modern Hungarians are directly descended from Attila and Attila's Huns, uh, you know, just uh, not directly due to language continuity problems. 
However, we don't fucking know exactly what language the hunt spoke. So once again, who truly knows? Uh, you know, you heard a lot of names of different tribes today and a lot of other ancient people not named today all traveled through the land that is now hungry. You know, various people settled the land over time. Their blood got all mixed up. I'm sure some modern Hungarians can trace their lineage back to uh, Attila and to, you know, Romans and to uh, ancestors of the Iranians, to various Germanic and Slavic people, to Celts and on and on and on. While the notion that Hungarians are directly descended from the Huns has been rejected by a lot of mainstream scholarship, the idea has continued to exert a, you know, a lot of influence on Hungarian nationalism and national identity. A majority of Hungarian aristocracy continued to ascribe to the Hunnic view well into the early 20th century. Attila and the Huns still a source of cultural pride for Hungarians today. Uh, a lot of scholars now believe the Bulgars, the people of modern Bulgaria and surrounding areas, more likely to be directly descended from the Huns than the Hungarians. One alleged ancestor of the Bulgars is Kobrat Han, also known as Wolf. Fuck yeah, bro. It's a great name, Wolf, uh, who may have been the grandson or great-grandson of Attila. So many maybes in the story, right? So many guesses. Uh, so much has been written and claimed about Attila that has no actual basis in anything we know for sure at all as far as what that dude did. Uh, check out a recent example. This was infuriating of someone perpetuating a bunch of Hun bullshit using the name Attila the Hun uh, to sell a lot of books in this case. Wes Roberts wrote Leadership Secrets of Attila the Hun, a book first published in 1985, uh, described as a runaway bestseller Right, climbed up the New York Times list, you know, just sold so many copies. Uh, the title really got my hopes up uh, when I first saw it about maybe finding some extra information about Attila. Uh, the byline for the book says, this is the book you've heard about. The book that leaped the top ranks of the bestseller list. The book that's got the business world reading, thinking, and quoting. This is the book that reveals the leadership secrets of Attila the Hun. The man who centuries ago shaped an aimless band of mercenary tribal nomads into the undisputed rulers of the ancient world and who today offers us timeless lessons in wind-directed take-charge management. First off, you now know that Attila was never the undisputed ruler of the ancient world. Uh, this book features so much advice that on quick read appears to come directly from Attila because it will say stuff like Attila said, speaking of this, uh, here's some exa uh, examples of what Attila supposedly said. We must refrain from charging prematurely and furiously into unfamiliar situations. We must not be unprepared for new tactics employed by the enemy. We must watch him closely, using our intelligence to detect and assess his likely methods. When we are outfitted in battle, dress, and armament of inferior utility, we must never engage an enemy. We must add catapults to our arsenal. We cannot expect the high walls of Roman bastions to crumble at the simple beating of our chargers' hoofs. Uh, I kept copying and pasting these quotes onto the web, hoping to find like ancient sources for them. Nothing came up other than this book. I wasted so much time doing this. Finally, combing through the introduction of this book for the second time, I came across this one little quote that's so important, uh, where the author says, the aphorisms spoken by Attila in this book have no basis of authenticity as ever having been said by the king of the hunts. They are rather ones that I have written based upon my own experiences, research, and observations. Attila never said literally any of the shit in this book. Not a fucking word. Wes Roberts provided no more actual history about Attila than I did here today because there fucking isn't any. The overwhelming majority of the book is just shit that he learned about business that he then is relaying to the reader as if Attila the Hun originally said something that he then adapted for modern times. The book's a fucking sham but it's well-reviewed. And you can tell from the comments on Amazon uh, that most people who have read it did not bother, as I often don't, uh, to read the introduction. 
So they come away thinking that Attila the Hunt actually said all this shit. That he actually shared all these insights. It's unfucking real. So many people have thought they know uh, what Attila has done or said. Right. Uh, Bill Madden reported in his biography of George Steinbrenner, former longtime owner of the New York Yankees, that George was in the habit of studying Attila in the hope of gaining insights that would prove invaluable in business. Attila Steinbrenner asserted wasn't perfect, but he did have some good things to say. He didn't have fucking anything to say. We don't know what he said about anything. What the fuck was Steinbrenner talking about? We literally don't know what Attila said. Uh, Strongly assuming he read Wes Roberts book. July 27th, 1900, during the Boxer Rebellion in China, Kaiser Wilhelm II of Germany gave the order to act ruthlessly towards rebels. He said, mercy will not be shown. Prisoners will not be taken. Just as a thousand years ago, the Huns under Attila won a reputation of might that lives on in legends. So may the name of Germany and China, such that no Chinese will even again dare so much as to look askance at a German. Uh, First off, your fucking timeline way off there, Wilhelm. Wasn't a thousand years ago, right? It was closer to 1500 years before what you're saying, which is a big difference. And the Huns were no more ruthless than so many other ancient peoples, right? I'm just blown away by a group and a man gaining such an enduring reputation for savagery on such little evidence. Here's maybe the best evidence I was able to find regarding the savagery of the Huns. And it was written before Attila was born. The fourth century Roman writer, but it gets mixed up with Attila all the time. The fourth century Roman writer, uh, you know, uh, gosh dang it, Ammianus Marcellinus, we mentioned before, wrote about the Huns in his famous history of Rome. You know, he chronicled in Latin the history of the Rome, uh, Rome from the ascension of the Emperor Nerva in 96 to the death of Valens in the Battle of Adrianople in 378, although only the sections covering the period 353 to 350, 378 survive. And of the Huns, he wrote, the nation of the Huns surpasses all other barbarians in wildness of life. And of the Huns do just bear the likeness of men of a very ugly pattern. They are so little advanced in civilization that they make no use of fire nor any kind of relish in the preparation of their food, but feed upon the roots which they can find in the fields and the half-raw flesh of any sort of animal. I say half-raw because they give it a kind of cooking by placing it between their own thighs and the backs of their horses. When attacked, they will sometimes engage in regular battle. Then going in to the fight in order of columns, they fill the air with varied and discordant cries. More often, however, they fight in no regular order of battle, but by being extremely swift and sudden in their movements. They disperse and then rapidly come together again in loose array, spread havoc over vast plains, and flying over the rampart, they pillage the camp of their enemy almost before he has become aware of their approach. It must be owned that they are most terrible of warriors because they fight at a distance with missile weapons, having sharpened bones admirably fastened to the shaft. When in close combat with swords, they fight without regard to their own safety. And while their enemy is intent upon parrying the thrust of the swords, they throw a net over him and so entangle his limbs that he loses all power of walking or riding. Get the fuck out of here. Uh, the thing about fire, I mean, they just really, they just never, ever fucking cooked any kind of meat. I mean, I don't know. This just, this just seems to be a ridiculous, like, let's just make them look as bad as possible. Right? They can, they can fucking barely talk. Right? They just fucking cook meat between their thighs, some kind of weird shit in the fourth century, but by the fifth century, you know, they're living in nice houses or some of their uh, people are being raised in Roman courts. Okay, sure. What the hell is he even talking about here? Uh, I'm going to file a lot of that in that swamp swamp demon witch file. So Attila the Hun, I mean, what a bunch of horseshit. What a great example of how if enough people say something is true for long enough, most people just then just continue to believe it, right? Evidence or not. We know Attila and the Huns attacked the Romans a lot and had more success than most barbarians of the day. And we don't know much else. Uh, and so fucking what? They attacked Romans and sacked their cities. Rome didn't build their empire through hugs and kisses, right? They did it by spilling a lot of blood, like the most blood, 
by enslaving the most people, by raising the most cities to the ground, like what they did to the Vandals. Uh, This guy's story is such a great reminder of just don't believe the hype, don't believe everything you hear. I assumed Attila was some super evil dude that I'd find so many great examples of him, like doing stuff like torturing people in like cruelly imaginative ways, maybe burning a dude's nuts off or melting people's eyes out of their heads with molten metal or something, uh, whipping people to death, covering them with raw meat and letting vultures peck their fucking faces off or something. Nope. The Huns cut their baby boys' faces. Maybe. Who even knows on that? You know, again, the Romans, you know, writing all this stuff. Uh, The next time someone tells you about how evil Attila was, here's what I want you to do. I want you to grab him and pull him in close. And I want you to scream, you don't know what the fuck you're talking about. And then, and then I put him in a headlock. And then I want you to literally twist their head off. And then I want you to take their decapitated head to their family and give it to them and say, that, what I just did, that's some evil shit. I'm the real Attila the Hun. And then I want you to hop on a horse, lasso them and drag them to their death. Or maybe just say something like, I don't know, was he? What did, what did he do? It was so evil. And maybe teach him some truth. Uh, let's look back. Had a bit more truth uh, about Attila the Hun with today's top five takeaways. Time suck. Top five takeaways. Number one, Attila was a great leader who dealt Rome east and west. More losses than the average barbarian. And he hosted a nice dinner one time. And we don't know a lot else for sure about him. Number two, there are no unbiased contemporary sources of information on Attila. What we know comes from writers who belong to the empires he terrorized. Number three, even though reports were definitely exaggerated about the Huns, Hun warriors were fierce. Armed with bows, uh, you know, and experts at riding horseback, they could fire an arrow into a man, penetrate his armor at 100 yards. They used psychological tactics, screaming and terrifying voices to alarm their opponents and seemed to be able to go from a disorganized horde to an organized fighting force in mere seconds. Number four, the Hun Empire didn't last long. At its peak, Around 445, after Attila's death in 453, uh, the empire was divided between his sons, quickly lost important battles. As a result, the Hun society fragmented and disappeared from the historical record in the decades following Attila's death. And number five, new info. In March of 2014, it was reported that Attila's tomb had been discovered in Budapest, Hungary. The find generated a great deal of interest. One of the researchers was even quoted in reports as saying, In fact, this definitely seems to be the resting place of the almighty Attila, but further analysis needs to be done to confirm it. Then further analysis was done by others not on the team that allegedly discovered Attila's tomb, and that analysis revealed the entire thing to be a hoax. Wherever his tomb is, what treasures it contains, it remains unknown. How fitting for such a mysterious historical figure. Time suck. Top five takeaways. Attila the Hun has been sucked. Uh, I never know where the research is going to take me with these stories. Uh, you know, uh, the researchers that we use here never know. And then a lot of times it, it, it shifted tremendously this time. You know, when I uh, when I got the initial stuff, I was looking at things. I was like, I don't know. I don't know. And just uh, so surprised where we ended up with this one. I was fascinated in a way I just did not expect with Attila. Uh, thank you to the Bad Magic Productions team, Queen of Bad Magic, Lindsay Cummins, uh, for running this business, letting me focus on the creative. Thanks to Reverend Dr. Joe Paisley for production. Thanks to Bitelixer for keeping the Time Suck app running smooth. Logan, the Art Warlock Keith, keeping uh, uh, the, the merch at badmagicmerch.com looking great for running socials with Liz the Enchantress Hernandez. Thanks to the All Seen Eyes moderating the Cult of the Curious private Facebook page. So many other pages out there, so many Time Suck groups out there if you're searching, uh, you know, through Facebook and awesome to see. Awesome to see a lot of uh, people forming great friendships and communities. Uh, thanks to Beefsteak and his mod squad running Discord. 
you know, was having a lot of fun over there. That's a really cool community. And thank you to producer Sophie Evans for her initial research on Attila the Hunt. Next week, how about we head to prison? Let's, let's riot. At 1.40 a.m., February 2nd, 1980, a group of inmates at the New Mexico State Penitentiary attacked three guards during their nightly count. What ensued was one of the deadliest prison riots in U.S. history. Drunk and angry inmates seized the prison, causing what can only be described as complete chaos. Twelve guards would be taken hostage. Over the course of 36 hours, 33 inmates would be killed. Reports came out that people were lit on fucking fire, beheaded, raped, and tortured. When it was all over, everyone wanted to know what caused that level of destruction, that level of rage and frustration from the inmates at the New Mexico State Penitentiary. Well, not only examine this crazy riot that didn't happen that long ago, where over 200 people were injured, guards supposedly raped, all sorts of shit, will also use this story as an excuse to analyze, you know, modern U.S. prison policy. So interesting stuff awaits. And uh, next week, and interesting stuff awaits right now, this week, with uh, our Time Sucker updates. Updates. Get your time sucker updates. Uh, let's ease into some Arthur Shawcross, Genesee River Killer updates with some comedy. Uh, cool ass sack Danny Brigman writes in with a head wound story that I found very amusing. He writes, uh, Hello, Master Sucker, His Royal Majesty, Son of Nimrod, Grand Ruler of the Cult of the Curious, the Bojangles of Idaho, the High King Lord Dan Cummins. I'm son of a new listener after my friend Rocket told me about this podcast. Shout out to Rocket. Uh, I've tried writing it before, so I do not expect you to read this on one of the upcoming podcasts. Well, I am, but I hope you do get a chance to read it in what little free time you have. Uh, To my point, when you mentioned Arthur Shawcross taking a discus to the head (laughs) and wondered how he did not die, it reminded me that I witnessed someone take one to the face and not even fall. It was at a high school track meet. School's probably as small as your, your old one in Riggins, where everyone knows everyone. I was hanging out with my friends from a rival school, Columbia, and we were watching kids on the team throw discus. Their throwing coach was a nice person. At this point with his age, the best way I can describe him as that uh, he he means well. (laughs) He was standing way too close to the net that surrounds the discus throwing area, and he was about to find that out. The kid from their school winds up to throw that some bitch as hard as he can with the full spin and everything except his release slips and hits his coach straight in the face from 10 yards away. The net did not even have a chance to slow this missile down before it hit him square between the eyes. There was a, <laughs> there was a collective gasp from everyone at the track meet as the coach stumbled back a couple steps while his clipboard and glasses went flying, but he didn't even fall over. People run over to check on him. He waves them off and then goes and stands in the exact same place. This wasn't even the kid's last throw, so he had to go again. I, too, was wondering how this coach didn't die, or at least fall over. Apparently, his skull was thicker than Arthur Shawcross's. Anyway, if you do read this, I hope you can do a suck on Native Americans and boarding schools. This has gotten some media attention recently with the recoveries in Kamloops. 215 children in a mass burial. Oh, yeah. Countless others. I'm a Spokane tribal member and still live on the reservation. And with you being local, I would appreciate it if you could use your platform to educate these suckers on the dark side of U.S. and Canadian history. Not sorry for the long email. Praise Bojangles. Hail Lucifina. Showbiz. That's how we do it in Hollywood. Keep on sucking. Danny. Danny, uh, thank you for a great tro- topic suggestion. Yeah, my God. Thank you for a great topic suggestion. My tongue is fried after trying all those Roman and Germanic names. And the hilarious story about how, uh, uh, yeah, some of the sacks can take a real hard shot to the head or to the face and not be faced. My God, that would have hurt so bad. Uh, hopefully that track coach's uh, frontal lobe was in better shape than Shawcross's after that shot. Uh, now let's clear up some confusion. 
got essentially the same uh, you know message from a few upset suckers about some of my statements in the shot cross suck. Concerned sack Jonathan Sanders writes, goodness me, Daniel, I'm a bit confused by your saying essentially, unless I misunderstood, that we should lock up people with a similar mental disposition as Arthur Shawcross. It seems like it would be rare enough to get a record of enough people with that perfect storm of traits that Shawcross had to begin to associate those traits to extreme violence. Yes, people with this disorder uh, or that might be prone to violence, which might include outbursts or throwing things, but I don't know of any disorder after taking multiple classes on abnormal psychology that have very specific symptoms like prone to murder (laughs) or prone to eat people. Even personality disorders like narcissism and uh, psychopathy can be managed and benign. Unfortunately, those people aren't studied very often because they don't have a problem. Uh, I think we're way off from the kind of minority report stuff. You said uh, you hope psychologists will one day come to implement. The APA doesn't seem to be able to tell its ass from its hand sometimes. That's true. With regular revisions of theories, recommendations, and ideas. Very little reproducible evidence to link disorders between individuals and cultural and more. I don't mean to say there isn't legitimacy to it. There's just a reason why psychology is called a soft science. It's a very difficult thing to study scientifically. Not to scold you too much, but it's pretty dangerous for public sentiment to talk about public or to talk about mentally ill people in terms of locking them up. There's already so much stigma out there, and most of it is based on the worst of the worst. Just the fact that people are different sets them up for daily abuse and adding fear or quasi-scientific applications or statistics to the mix is just going to widen the gulf of ignorance. Well, great message, uh, message, Jonathan. No, I don't. I don't want to just start locking up uh, the mentally ill all willy-nilly, which I know isn't what you said. But uh, but unless I misspoke, what I think I said was that if you've committed the kind of crime that Shawcross was initially locked up for, killing and raping two children, something at that level, and you have a combination of extreme forms of a variety of mental illnesses combined with brain damage, some especially horrible mix, it's very clear you know, that you will likely never be able to properly regulate the violent behavior you have already demonstrated. In that situation, why would you ever be released, right? Hopefully that's what, that's, that's what, what I actually said. Until we learn more about how to repair someone's clearly damaged frontal lobe kind of morality and violence regulator, I think it seems very reckless to parole people who have already proven to not be able to follow, you know, or, you know, like they're uh, not be able to kind of like hold back on their terrible impulses. Uh, yeah, I probably uh, took my argument too far. But again, in extreme cases, I I just think that the mental health of someone already proven to be extremely dangerous to the public should be factored into whether or not they're ever released. I mean, I don't think somebody mental ill or not in that situation should ever be released, but it's just, I would add an extra layer if they have the kinds of mental illness similar to what Shawcross had, where they've done horrible, horrible things and scanning their brain, talking to therapists. It's uh, people kind of come to the agreement that like, yeah, they don't know how to regulate their behavior. They're a fucking time bomb. Well then- I just don't see why they should ever be released. Uh, yes, psychology is a soft science, so we should tread lightly, you know, and stuff like this. Uh, I hope that clears up my stance a bit. Uh, awesome sack. Jennifer did not listen to last week's episode and thanked me for the warning I gave in a very nice way. She wrote, uh, it's just uh, good for me to hear. So much to say in the limited space that uh, a sorry, not sorry for length disclaimer will allow. So let me get to the point since brevity is not my strong suit. In 2013, my toddler son, Jeremiah, had died in a tragic accident. I'm so sorry. The aftermath was so horrific that I continued to suffer from PTSD and complicated grief. The reason I say this is to commend you for your trigger warning prior to your recent suck of Arthur Shawcross. Your acknowledgement that you were not necessarily mindful in cases like the Vampire of Sacramento, which took me a while to recover from, is completely understandable if you've not had to pen your child's obituary. But But your acknowledgement that you're trying really does mean a lot. For any backlash your trigger warning might receive for coddling to little snowflakes, please allow me to have a moment to explain. 
I too might have sniggered at your warning prior to the tragedy that befell my family. PTSD triggers can happen in unexpected places and it's like reliving the trauma again, a nightmare you cannot wake up from that lasts hours, but then comes a deep depression, which is hard to claw through. So for my fellow meat sacks who are very lucky to not know what it is like to have to pick out a pint-sized coffin for your baby, my God, be thankful. Ask that you never have to do whatever sky dweller uh, you wish to insert here. Uh, Beg, offer up, tithing, practice self-flagellation. I thank you, meat sacks, for sitting through a warning that doesn't pertain to you because it really does help meat sacks like me. And for our master sucker of ceremonies, thank you so much down for uh, allowing me to continue to suck on your sweet teat of research on the bazaar. Uh, Those of us navigating life around trauma cannot sequester ourselves. We have to function in this world. I have gallows humor and appreciate the suck. It's just the trigger warning just helped me to avoid hearing something that can cause me to have a sucky in a bad way couple of months. Unfortunately, this will ruin your three stars streak because you get an extra gold star for compassion. Four out of five stars would change the thing. Uh, Love always your faithful listener, except when you give a trigger warning. Uh, User of too many parentheses, Jennifer. Jennifer, I like a parenthesis as well. Uh, P.S. I told you brevity is not my strong suit, but since I've got your attention, at least I hope, if you do end up reading this on air, please would you say happy birthday to Amazing Meat Sack Liam. He decided to make me his wife, despite my as-is condition. That's a funny way to put that. Rather than read you his resume, suffice to say that he is the embodiment of every cliche thing that people say around Valentine's Day. Oh, that's very sweet. He continues to sweep up the shards of my broken life, lovingly holds me together, all the while whispering to me that he believes in me and it'll be okay because we have each other's backs. I got him into the suck and he took me uh, to see you recently in San Francisco, which was amazeballs. Laughter really helps us get through the rough times. Thank you for what you do. Well, thank you, Jennifer. Uh, uh, so sorry again for what you've gone through. Uh, your strength is admirable. And yeah, you know, it's like that, the way you kind of phrase that, uh, you know, I'm sure I'll, in the, in the rush of putting these things together every week, not get it right all the time, but I will, I will definitely think more about, yeah, certain extreme episodes, you know, just letting people know what's, what's coming for them. Maybe just more episodes. Yeah, I'm definitely going to try and uh, try and remember that. And happy birthday, Liam. You sound like a great, great dude. Keep having fun with Jennifer. Best luck, you two. Uh, let's end on some Shaw Cross related comedy. Uh, Super Sucker Evan is a great daddy guy. <laughs> and uh, the episode put him in a very creepy and funny to me situation. <laughs> he, uh, he writes, I'm currently trying to rub my daughter's back to sleep and your nearly two minute long daddy guy uh, rant made me buckle the knees and laugh out loud. Waking up, scratch that, completely startling my five-year-old little girl. For some reason, hearing that song while I rub her back gave me the heebie-jeebies. <laughs> Just wanted to let you know your blackout wasn't for naught. Uh, you made a 27-year-old man buckle the knees and a five-year-old girl jump awake and yell, what, daddy? <laughs> I couldn't even... Talk, I had to just hold my breath and lay her back down so I wouldn't laugh too loudly. I think she's asleep now. Love you. Fuck you. Hail <laughs> Nimrod. Evan. Ah, oh, Evan, you sound like a great daddy guy. I'll be a good daddy guy. Help another daddy guys. Watch kitty pies. Eating the kitty thighs. Maybe not just the kitty guys. Uh, I don't even know what the fuck I was talking about. Evan, uh, that really cracked me up. Thanks for sharing that. And uh, thank you all for the messages you continue to send in to the Time Sucker updates. Thanks, time suckers. I needed that. We all did. Thank you again for listening to another Bad Magic Production podcast, Meat Sack. Uh, don't go full Attila the Hun on anyone this week, Meat Sacks. Or maybe do, because who even knows what the fuck that means? Maybe it means to keep on sucking. Bad Magic Productions.
Taylor the Hun. Hey, Joe, how's it going, buddy? Good. Um, so yeah. we're heading out. We're going to fucking kill some people. Okay. And we were wondering if you wanted to come because right. you know, you're at Taylor the Hun. Right. And you fucking kill people. Well, I mean, you know, when we're, you know, kind of looting and stuff and trying yeah. to take over territory, but I, I got to know more about these people. I mean, if I don't have a problem with them. Well, here's what you need to know. Yeah. They have dicks we can cut off and then Whoa. feet we can cut off. Wow. And then we can put them in some soup and then feed them to their families. Jesus Christ. You don't feed their dicks. That's, that's what you. That's what you do. No, no, that's no. What they no. Do. All the guys told me. No, there's a lot of do. rumors. There's a lot of rumors. Oh, now I feel. I, I feel silly. You know what? Yeah. I just. My wife made a nice soup. Okay. And it's just. It's made out of meat. It's. We even cooked it. We we can cook things. And not enemies wieners or anything. No, either? it's not enemies wieners. It's just some nice beef. Okay. Let's have a nice beef stew. All right. Um, some wine. Let's just think about maybe we can kind of like talk out a lot of these situations. Think, do we really need to go to violence? Okay. Maybe we can like, you know, get a treaty with them mm-hmm. or, or, or something and just, you know, just try and work things out. I just, you know, nonviolence is what I'm always, always kind of aiming for. Okay. I'll, hey, I'll, come here. I'll, I'll, yeah. Come here. Just calm down. Okay. Yeah. You're, no, no one has to die. <laughs> sorry, I, sorry I came in here so hot. <laughs> That's okay. I'll let everyone know. That's okay. No, I get it. I get this a lot. I get this yeah, a lot. We're not, we're not cutting off people's feet and wieners and stuff. No, no wiener cutting off guys. Let's just, uh, it's all chill. It's all chill. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia.